This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. My guest today is an old soul, a true newspaper man. He's covered the news for the small local papers, traveled halfway around the world to cover a war in the Middle East. Now a professor at Cypress College, he's teaching the next generation of journalists on how to cover the next big story and the small ones as well. Michael Coronado and I talk about journalism, mustaches, and Land Rovers. I think journalism is at its next big milestone. So I think it's, it's, um, it reached its peak in the 80s and 90s uh, when it was the only game in town. And then all of a sudden that perfect storm, the recession, the internet, all these different apps, Craigslist, all these things that have taken away profit and revenue. Um, because right now you're seeing this, you're seeing this kind of reflection of what is journalism? What is journalism about? I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. We've had such guests who have been awarded the Silver Star, won the Emmy, and photographer Marcus Yam. I mean, the re- revelation there really is just the going to people's homes my first three weeks and just like talking to people and like being curious and all that stuff. And by the third or fourth week of that internship, I had this like weird flash forward moment the same one I had when I was like right like before I decided to drop out of high school and it's like a weird like planets are aligning like you, the hair in your the back of your neck is standing up and your 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 intuition's telling you something and I thought to myself this is it this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing for the rest of my life go to justagoodconversation.com for all our archives Let's take a quick break for our sponsor before diving into our conversation with Michael Coronado. Michael, thank Eddie. you for thank you for the time. Absolutely. On a beautiful Friday afternoon. Absolutely. My pleasure, man. Always great talking to you. I know, I know. It's been too long. It's we're doing it more often, but it has been a long time. Yeah. 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 I, I know a lot about you, but not anything about you. And I love that in a person like I get to sit down and actually learn something because mm-hmm. I know like your your middle and end but I don't know your beginning. So tell me were you always interested as a child in the newspaper business? So I'll tell you an interesting story about um how I actually got into newspapers and how I got into news. You know, when I was a kid growing up, so my dad was a farm worker, right? So he came across from Mexico. He was doing um, the farm labor stuff out in Burbank. and Oh, Burbank. Okay. Yeah, back in the day. And he would get the register, the Orange County Register, every day. And he, in, From Burbank? No, when we lived in Santa Ana. Okay. So I grew up in Santa Ana. And, and he would go all the way to Burbank every day? Uh, that was after. So that, okay. was, that was prior to, to us moving to Orange County. Okay. So um, he didn't speak really good English. And so he would get the Orange County Register every day. And he would sit down at the table, just like we're doing right now, and he'd read stories to try to learn English. And so while he was doing that and having his cup of coffee, I sat down growing up looking at the box scores at first, looking at the comics, following the Dodgers, and then um, got to the point where I started reading the news pages. So I did this, I acclimated myself as a kid Years and years, just he and I sitting down at the table in the morning, drinking coffee while he was learning English and I was learning about the news. And somehow that kind of permeated it and stuck so that the rest is history. How old were you? You know, we start, I started reading the paper probably when I was eight. Okay. Yeah, looking at the comics first. 
and then uh, moving into the box scores and looking at the Dodgers and reading the sports pages like a lot of other kids. So you still have those memories of the two of you at the table. Yeah, yeah. When did you touch any of journalism like in junior high, high school? Did you do the paper route? Yeah, in high school, I, I, I wrote for the um, it was Saddleback High School okay. in Santa Ana. So I wrote for the Roadrunner. Okay. Right. And I thought, oh, I'm going to be a sports guy. I think this is cool. And so that's I, an easy gate for all the kids, right? right? You like sports. Right. It's sexy. Right. So I started covering, uh, I covered tennis. And <laughs> the mean beat of saddlebag tennis? It was very difficult. Yes. Very, <laughs> especially, especially when, when you've never picked up a racket in your life. Now, how, did that, how did they even choose that? How did the advisor go, Michael, you, young man, you've got tennis? Yeah. You know, I think I just, I ended up kind of getting what was left. <laughs> It was sort of, this is your first semester on the Roadrunner, and we're going to just, you know, how about tennis? What year? Freshman year? Sophomore? Junior? I think it was sophomore. Okay. Yeah. So that was my first foray. I remember I did a tennis story, and I did a story about classic cars, a classic car show that was local or something. That's you know, cool. Yeah. It was fun. It was, it was somewhat just getting to know what this thing is all about. Right. You know, I knew that I was a good writer. Um, Were you naturally? Did you enjoy writing? Yeah. In high school, it it was something that came easy to me. Okay. So I enjoyed reading and I enjoyed writing. Uh, Math was the tough subject. And, but I, I recognized that um, I was a good reader. I could comprehend and synthesize information pretty easily as a young adult or as a teenager. And I was able to write stories. And I thought, well, okay, this is sort of the pathway, at least I know that's being laid out for me career-wise or in college, think about those kinds of pathways in terms of reading and writing. Right. Did, did you just read everything as a kid? Were you just like, any book, you would just read it? Or yeah. were you a sports book kid? No, any books. And I was really into science fantasy. Okay. So the whole Dungeons and Dragons thing. Right. And, the, um, and I remember the scariest book I ever read uh, when I... To this day, because I don't, I don't read too much horror, but um, there was a book. <laughs> what you did as a child. I did as a child. I remember <laughs> getting on the bookmobile at John Adams Elementary, and somehow I got to check out The Howling. Oh. The book, The Howling. Yeah. You know, based on the movie, you know, the movies right. came out. And it was the, it was the most out-of-body experience as a kid reading this thing. But I was so absorbed into it, right? This is your first foray as a kid into this imaginative world of werewolves and other things that are transforming. And, you know, your, your brain is still developing. You're like a sponge. And, you know, I got hooked. Not on, not on horror, but I get hooked on reading. Right. And so, you know, one of my, you know, one of my mea culpas in high school was that I would sit in math class and I would prop up my geometry book. And behind it, I would have a science fantasy book and I would literally read my book in class because I loved reading so much I loved reading about those topics that much right see it I wish it's like if I could be king for a day I put the tell kids put the phone down pick up a book mm-hmm. your imagination like you could still close your eyes and that howling book still gets you right so it did something to you as a child like it opened up a a part of your mind to that imagination right whatever those letters and words came together, they made a visual connection in your head and it still sticks you to this day. Right. There's a reason why books are such a relevant platform still. You know, a lot of people, I joke in the classes when I teach, like who has a library? 
said, I have a library at home, but you know, mostly it's because books make you look smart. So you just kind of have them up there, even if you've never read them before. Um, But books are so relevant today because they're a different kind of platform in terms of what you have to do when you actually open a book. Right. When you think of a, 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 um, of a smartphone, you know, we're swiping left and right and we're doing so kind of like we used to do with magazines. We're just kind of doing this discovery. Yep. We're kind of just drinking this information in. It's designed in a way that's really smart and quick and fast and visual. But with a book, whoa, you've got to step back. You've got to open that book. It's got a smell to it. It's got a heft to it. It's got all those words. You have to encode that language. Sometimes you have to reread it. Um, sometimes you have to... Um, you know, go back and study a passage because you didn't understand what the author was trying to get across. Right. Um, and then there's the victory, right? You get to turn the page. So you're getting closer to the end and you're really investing your time and your energy into slowing your brain down, into slowing your mind down to really take this journey with the author through that through that book. And it's very difficult for a lot of people to do, I think. Yeah. You know, Are you reading anything now? Um what am I reading right? You know, mostly textbooks. And okay. I'll tell you because most of my reading time is devoted to a lot of um, research. So I'm doing a lot of research for the uh, doctoral program I'm, I'm right. part of. So but not, no enjoyable books at this moment. You know, I read, uh, as you know, I like wine. And so I, was, I read Wine Folly by uh, Madeline Paquette. Uh, so it's a James Beard award-winning book. Okay. Um, really fun, approachable book uh, in terms of how you uh, can approach wine and taste wine, that sort of thing. Well, how big was it? Big book? Fairly big. Not too bad. Yeah, it's fairly right. big. Put that bad boy on the uh, shelf behind you during a Zoom meeting. Does <laughs> he look like you? <laughs> look, I'm a wino. Yeah. yeah. Well, it could be next to someone's bio, but That's you know, right. you want to be well-rounded on the platform. So after high school, were you looking for a career in journalism? Is something you and the counselor sat down and you said, I want to work in a paper or a write or... Where did that go? You know, my counselor sat down with me and uh, Mr. Wheeler uh, looked at my grades and looked at my path and um, said, uh, you know, do you, do you, maybe you can go into uh, some kind of like auto mechanics program or some or some kind of word processing program. And um, I don't think he meant it as a slight, but he was really trying to kind of steer me in the right direction. Find something for you. Yeah. And yeah. it looked like vocational was my pathway. And uh, there's, you know, those are fantastic careers. I was, you know, I, for 10 years, I was a, I was a produce clerk at the grocery store and I almost stayed down that path. Um, but when I decided to go to OCC, you know, I was on the five-year path to OCC, um, trying to find my place in the world, just like everybody else. And right. I thought I, I like marketing. I took a marketing class and I did pretty well and I enjoyed it. And, um, marketing led to taking a Mass Com 100 class. Uh oh. And from the slippery mass, slope. That's right. And from the Mass Com 100 <laughs> class, I moved into uh, Journalism 101 or Journalism 100 uh, by Tom Murphine. And once you took the class, hopped on the paper, and the rest is history. Did so? You really didn't think while you were taking that time, you were just kind of going through school. Mm-hmm. You didn't have the mindset. I'm going to be a journalist just kind of slowly happened. Yeah. It was, what, a, what did Tom do to open up that 
book in your head, that chapter. Yeah, here's the strange thing is that, you know, when I first took Tom's 101 class, I actually got a C. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell people with all the journalism experience that I've had so far, I started out with a C. You know, and uh, Tom came up to me one day and said, I mean, it's usually gruff voice. Michael, I think uh, do you, do you should try to take my uh, journalism 101 class and, and then go on to the school paper, go on to the Coast Report. And then he would light his pipe and blow air or smoke into the air, as you recall. And, yeah. Um, so I did, you know, joined the Coast Report, tried it out and um, got my feet wet, learned what it was like to have those scary interviews with somebody that you haven't um, interviewed before. Right. You know? Uh, covering a topic that you haven't covered before, and um, found out that I was pretty good at it. It was a, it was sort of a natural, it was a natural extension of what I was able to do um, in terms of writing and reporting. I wasn't in love with it just yet, okay. but I was good at it, and I thought this is this could this might take me somewhere. Did you feel a good as you were a good people person? Believe it or not, I, th I still think to this day I am uh, an introvert. Okay. Uh, but I think that comes with the idea that, um, you know, I draw sort of that, the strength to figure things out from within. Okay. And, um, you know, I, I'm, just as, I'm just as comfortable being locked in a room in an office all day doing, doing my own study, study work um, as I am talking to you and talking to classes and being out talking to people and interviewing folks. I think what, what people have told me is that having an even disposition, like my wife jokes around that this is me excited, this right. is me mad, this is me nervous, <laughs> this is me, right? So I've been able to take that disposition into different kinds of interviews and use that professionalism to really get people to open up, you know, be able to ask those questions that are sometimes tricky to ask, sure. but always maintaining that professional disposition and uh, trying to get those answers out. Yeah, because that's key. Yeah. You don't want to go in all guns a blazing or just be completely a clam. Mm -hmm. Got to be able to pull a story out of somebody. Yeah, and it's tough. Yeah. It's difficult. Because Especially when they're maybe not going to open up. Right. So now you've you got two people who don't know how to talk to each other or are scared to. Yeah. One's got to be a reporter. And one's got to tell you a story. Right. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, I mean, all journalism stories, you know, we are fact-based storytellers. And so our role is to tell these stories uh, through people's eyes, hopefully, um, in a way that's objective and uses the facts to tell that story. You know, we're not fiction writers. We're not storytellers, uh, per se, in a, um, in a uh, literature sense, but one in which we are curating history. We are curating the history of the day. I still think it's, a, it's an incredibly magnificent um, concept that you could pick up a New York Times or an LA Times from a specific day, and you could have the world's news professionally curated in that edition. Right. I still think that's an amazing thing. When we worked together at the Coast Report, I knew when we were together, like you were going to be the guy that was going to be this long haul career. Like some other ones I was like, eh, they're in it now because it's fun and you're 20 or whatever and you'll fade off. But I was like, this guy's the old soul. He's going to be sitting around with a pipe like a morphine, you know, at the arches after the daily pilot and smoking and having a drink and yeah, three in the morning saying, ah, we closed a good paper today. Like I had a feeling you were going to be that guy. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was just a, it was a sense you carry the way it was just like you, when I watched you, it didn't look like you were working. It looked like you were 
like the maestro, just hey, you were taking it all in and working real smooth. It wasn't a, seemed like a struggle for you, especially at that point. I think at the very end where it was you and John were both a uh, co right, yeah, you know, co editors, yeah, yeah. Thanks for that, Matt. Because I think you know you you hit it when you said an old soul. So I was really involved with things that, when I look back on it, things that were just kind of old soul type things. I loved horse racing. I loved uh, books. I loved uh, journalism. I loved the smell of newspaper. I loved writing and reading. And um, I think that's what carried me forward was just kind of, you know, letting it all sink in and realizing you're pretty good at this if you want to hone your skill. And so quickly you learn there's the reporting path and then there's the writing path. Right. So I, I tried to become a student of both of those different aspects, reporting aspect and the writing aspect. What did Tom teach you at that point now on the paper? Because there's one thing in the classroom, but now when you're in with him at the paper, it's a different level. Mm -hmm. What did he give you? You know, Tom was, um, Tom was the calming presence. So he was the guy who didn't really get rattled by a whole lot. And I thought I admire that so much because I recognize that despite the fact that you see all of us kid lunatics running around in circles, getting crazy about the paper, trying to make deadlines and such, you had this old guy off to the side with his pipe who you knew had oodles of experience and was just this calming voice. You know, he knew things were going to be okay. He knew how to control the situation. And so I think that's what he imparted to me a little bit, was trying to have that wisdom to be able to convey that to other people. And I still do that today because what I do is I tell my students, hey, you know, this is a long haul journey for you. And if you are on your educational journey and your career path, I want to do for you what Tom did for me, basically be a backstop. So I've covered every kind of story. I've reported about every kind of story and I have edited or overseen every kind of situation. So rely on me, reach back. Hey, I am sitting at a city council meeting. I'm panicking. I'm almost in tears because I don't know what to write. And my deadline's in a half hour. Give me a call and we'll walk through it. And so I do that for all of my college students because I want to kind of take that journey with them. I keep in touch with the folks who are transferring to Fullerton, Long Beach, and um, sometimes USC, other places like that. Um, that's what Tom did for me. You know, I, I stayed in touch with him and I want to do that for my students. Right. It's funny. You said, uh, the old guy in the corner and he, he passed away at 63 when, when I would, when we were working with him, he seemed like he was 103. He just seemed older. Like it was at that period of time. Like I had no other professor that dressed like him. A couple of my professors did smoke, but he always had his pipe going. Mm -hmm. He was in a room that was very small. He had stacks of papers, stuff up on the wall, old and new. And he would just sit back there and he would just listen and take it all in. All these kids running around like their heads cut off. Mm -hmm. And he always had time. I always remember that. Even if I was on the photo side, he would always, well, let's talk. Mm -hmm. What's going on? How's that story working out for you? How did the game go? He was always there. And he looked like he was having fun. Oh, great he, time. He thought he was, I thought he was just having the best of times back there. Yeah. I remember that trip we took when we were in Fresno and he looked like he got 20 years younger just because all of a sudden he's out and about with all his colleagues and he's bringing, you know, his troops to go to war to make an award ceremony. And he couldn't have been happier when we were out there. Yeah, he was, uh, he was, yeah, he was quite an influential, influential force. 
So when you get done with OCC, you go, I'm going to Fullerton? Yeah. So uh, five years later, <laughs> yeah, I try not to tell my students to follow my path. But what I do tell them is, to, you know, community college, and I give them the speech to begin with that, hey, you know what? Um, if you're feeling lost right now, if you're feeling like you're in a place where you don't have any meaning or you're trying to understand what you're about, um, if you're confused, you know, if you have no idea what you're going to do with the rest of your life, if you are scared because this is the first time that nobody is programming your day for you in school, I said, you know what? You were in the exact right place you should be in my class learning about journalism. This is exactly where you should be at Cypress College or whatever community college you're in. Because this is the place where you're going to be able to find the thing that sings to you. And you shouldn't be scared or programmed and thinking, I've got to do it this way or I need to have this done. You know, there is a certain advantage to go into a community college um, prior to going to a four-year school. It's fantastic. If you get accepted into a four-year school and you, you think you know what you want to do, that's, that's great. Right. But if you find yourself in a community college, you know, that is a wonderful place to be because you're going to have a lot of instructors who are primarily there as teachers, right? Mm -hmm. They're not there as the four-year institutional researcher who has a teaching assistant who is helping to uh, guide the classroom. No, we are the people that are in front of you that are going to help you to find that path you want to be on. Um, try a lot of different things, you know? Try to figure out what you like, what sings to you, what are you good at, what do you really love to do? And when you can marry all those three things together, you know, what you really like to do, um, what comes naturally to you, where you think your path might lead you five or 10 years from now, that's when the magic happens. Right. And you're not alone. Right. 90% <laughs> of the people on that campus are doing the same thing. Right. right. Yeah. No, it's the best place to be. There's no reason to feel that uh, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing, so I'm just going to spin my wheels. Right. But students need to hear that. Right. Right. They need that reinforcement. We We think too much of what we see um, stereotypically out in, in mass media and social media that these kids have got it going on. They right. know what they're doing. They know how, um, how their, where their strengths are. They know what, what they want to be in five years. You know, they really don't. A lot of times they enter school and they're just trying to figure things out. Right. And so, you know, we have to recognize that. So did you bang it out at Cal State Fullerton to get in and out as quickly as possible? Or did you go onto the paper there as well? You know, once I came out of OCC, I knew that this was something that I wanted to do. Okay. So now the focus is journalism. And so my classes primarily were focused on journalism and my grades progressively got better. You know, I honed my the work that I was doing. You were focused. Yeah, I was focused. And I was, uh, and I also had some contacts. So I had contacts at the register. So I was able to um, get an internship through the, to the Orange County Register, which back then was a huge deal. Yes. It was huge. I remember sitting down with uh, Jan Lee Watson and she was the hiring editor for the interns. And she showed me a stack of folders and said, um, Michael, these are, these are resumes from Northwestern and Columbia and um, all these big, right. you know, Ohio, Missouri, right. Right. wherever. Right. And she said, I'm going to take a chance on you because I like the local Cal State Fullerton guys. And she, that with the rest was history. She brought me on board and um, started at the Brea Progress, uh, one of the community papers out of Anaheim, uh, the Anaheim Bureau. Right. And um, that's kind of how I got started. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it was fun. Although back then, you know, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have smartphones. Right. You know, right. we, um, we had ATEX word processing machines and <laughs> you could look at the wire. That's yeah. about it. 
in little green dots. Yeah. And that was about it in terms of what was going on in the world. It was still exciting, um, but it was a time when you really had to figure out, okay, what am I going to cover? How am I going to cover it? You know, what's my beat? How do I find stories? Right. Yeah, especially a city like Brea. Yeah. yeah you had a was, lot of stuff going on. Yeah, it was a challenge. Yeah, I mean, you got the mall, you got the freeways going through it, that's expanding, there's all kinds of stuff going on. Did you enjoy that, covering that, that city? Yeah, it was fun. It was my first foray into seeing my byline in a professional newspaper. And do you remember your first story? Um, I do. It was a story about um, a father-son business, and they built trailers for mostly like race cars out of Brea. Okay. And so I did a story about their business and it was kind of a business profile. Uh So one of those business profiles. Um, And then I did another story about, I got, I got wind of um, some type of, some type of shooting that took place in Brea and and I found out it was gang related. And so I started, the wheels started spinning. Yeah. The wheels started spinning and, and you got to remember this was in 90. This was in 93, 94. Right. And so the wheels began spinning and I started to ask questions of law enforcement. Hey, can you give me these numbers on gang activity? Can you give me these numbers on um, shootings? Can you give these numbers on the number of officers you have investigating these sort of crimes and graffiti and such? And I did a story looking at the trend that gang violence was actually going up in Brea in the past five years. And I landed on the front page of that Brea Progress, the top of the cover, and um, it was... Uh, it was sort of a, an awakening, like, oh, you can do this. Was it an eye-opening for people of Brea? Because I'm sure they didn't think there was gangs in Brea, or yeah. they didn't see it. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure it was for a lot of folks. Uh, my editors enjoyed the story. They liked the story. Um, and, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was one of those stories that people don't necessarily expect, but when you get them out there, right. then it's one of those really helpful and useful stories for people to read. How, how was your time at Cal State Fullerton? Cal State Fullerton was fun. It was a different, uh, different type of world going from OCC to Cal State Fullerton, because at OCC, as you know, you know we were the kings of the castle, right? For the most part, you know, Coast Report, we were the top, you know, we were the top brass in our little kingdom, right? Moving from there to the big four-year school, the Daily Titan, in which you're just a staff writer, and other people are telling you what to do and how to do it. And you may not get the beat you want. You don't get to write the stories you want to write. Mm-hmm. And this thing, oh, by the way, it's a daily. And so you're going to get used to writing not on a weekly basis, but on a daily basis. So that part of it was a little bit of a um, you know, transformation, trying to learn how to write quickly on deadline. But Did you no. take to it okay? I think so. I met some good friends. You know, the writing, of course, wasn't great, but... Um, you, you hone your craft. You learn your weaknesses, what you need to uh, work on. You learn where the gaps reside in your reporting. You learn where the gaps reside in your writing. Um, and you try to fill those in. All right. Between the internship and now at Cal State Fullerton, are you hooked? Like, are you? Oh, yeah. You're just, you're an addict. There's yeah. no turning back. You're doing journalism. Yeah, I'm doing or journalism. Or some kind of writing. You're, you're in. Right. I'm doing journalism. So where's your mindset now? What are you thinking like, what do I got to do next? What am I in the next two years? Uh, well, what I was trying to do is figure out if I can get another internship. Okay. Or if I could figure out where I was going to um, possibly get hired, uh, you know, once I got out of school. And what happened is I eventually got into um, back with the Orange County Register. And so I talked to, um, I had some contacts at the register um, and I got hired as a community reporter. Okay. 
And so all of this was when I was working at the grocery store too. So I was yeah the juggle of life, right? Yeah, the Jobs. juggle of life. I was it was an interesting place in time because, you know, I I wasn't really a starving student because the grocery store I was already a journeyman level by then, and so I had this conflict, this little baby conflict with. I was making a lot of good money. Mm-hmm. Do I want to continue to pursue this? And do I want to even continue to do this full time? Right. It's tough. Uh, when yeah. you cut bait and go all in, how was that decision for you? Yeah, it was tough. So you finish your schooling and you think, okay, this is what I'm going to do for my career. And people are trying to help you understand you know, salaries and things like that. And it's always a little fuzzy. But um, I had to really do a gut check when I started, when I got offered a job at the uh, Capistrano Valley News, which is right here in San Juan Capistrano. Right. And um, I was making 15 bucks an hour back in um, 1995 when I was, um, you know, 22 years old, 23 years old. As the clerk, right? As yeah. the clerk, as the produce clerk. You know, I was that was union. damn good money. That's right. I was union. Was yeah. that 30 or 40 hours a week? What were you doing? I was doing about 30. Okay. Between 25, 30 hours a week going to school part-time. And That's good money. Oh, it was great. Yeah, we got to do everything we wanted to do on the weekends, you know? And um, and then I get hired at the... I get this job offer from the register, and I learned that I'm making like... Uh, eight something an hour, nine bucks an hour to work 40 hours a week. And 40 hours a week was never 40 hours a week as a community reporter. Nope. You know, that was 50, 60 hours a week, really late nights and really early mornings. Um, and that was tough. That was, that was, you really had to think about, is this what I want to do? And does it get any better? And I think what I tell people today too, including students is that um, you've got to look beyond the immediate sort of situation. Right. And that was the tough part. That's where the kind of you, you have to have that foresight. You have to be able to see that, okay, this is going to last for a couple hours or a couple years. Um, but what's, a, what's beyond this? Right. What's the next step? What's the next stage? And can I lay those, can I lay that career path out? And does it sort of check all the boxes that I'm trying to check? Um, and it seemed to be the case that it did. You started as a community reporter. You moved up perhaps to a community editor. From there, maybe you moved up to a staff writer. And then from a staff writer, you moved up to a senior staff writer. So there was this trajectory laid out if that was the case, if that was the path you wanted to take. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Because I always looked at it as at some point you needed to get drafted. Single A, double A. Nobody goes from high school to the major leagues. And if they do, it's one in a hundred thousand, right? So we have to put in that grind. And if that means spending time at the little San Juan paper off of main street, I think it was right. A little, wasn't it downtown by the beach? The, that was, uh, the sun post. Oh, the sun post. I knew I stopped in and there. I was at the sun post for seven years, right. seven years of my life. Yeah. So was, at some point you got to put in those times and then, I mean, you were fortunate you never had to do this, but I'm going to ask you why. It's like you never had to leave and go to Ohio, Montana, you know, Seattle to New York and then make it to L.A. Like mm-hmm. it, sometimes you have to do that. Yeah. You're working at the little teeny paper in Billings, Montana. Then you make it to Jackson Hole, Wyoming and then Denver. So how did it take you a year or two or how was that adjustment from going and leaving the grocery store to now becoming the starving but in your career journalist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'll back up for a minute. I'll address the case of why I didn't go anywhere. 
was because I had 20 rejection letters from everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that too. So I had those. You might want to go. It just That's right. I sent them out. I It wasn't for lack of sending these things out. Um, and I had 20 rejection letters, you know, maybe a little bit more than that. I did get an acceptance for an internship at a paper in Utah, I remember. Okay. And I thought, okay, this looks pretty cool. You know, you're young. You could try it out. Give it a shot. Um, however, when I got the uh, register internship, it was all over. It was like, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to, I'm going to stay here at the OC register. So I get the job um, and uh, literally I go out and um, it's cold enough. I like to say it was cold enough. It was rainy enough. <laughs> so I go out and buy the, uh, buy the great trench coat. And so I go to the office, you know, and, and the office is nothing like in the movies, right? No. It's just, it's just a bunch of cubicles hobbled together. Right. People, people gaggling. Beige or gray. That's right. We were, yeah. And, uh, we worked out of Lake Forest, uh, the Bureau in Lake Forest for the register. And, um, and, uh, it was, it was a fantastic thing to see the kind of work that you could produce that was meaningful to people. All of a sudden you're working at a place in which you're putting your name on this copy that comes out the next day and people are responding. Boy, are they responding. Holy cow. This community of 17,000 people, 14,000 back then was looking at my story and they were calling me to tell me that, Hey, you need to look into this or why didn't you write about that? Or wow, Hey, really? We a, you were oh, getting absolutely. that kind of feedback. Absolutely. San Juan Capistrano is a really political town. And, um, at one point there were, Five, I want to count them, five different newspapers covering this tiny little town, 14 square miles. There were five different newspapers. What was getting everybody so fired up politically? You know, I think there was a lot of, um, there was a, there, elections were always a big deal. Okay. Um, you know, city council, mayor. Yeah, city council, who was going to control the power. We also, in San Juan Capistrano, we have the oldest, the oldest um, neighborhood in all of California, the Los Rios district. So it's it's one of the um, it's one of those kind of crown jewels of San Juan Capistrano. Anytime someone goes in there and tries to um, tweak something or put up a business or develop it in a certain way, then there's a lot of there's a lot of Push discussion. Back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I was doing that. I was covering this town. I was learning so much about this community. So was that nice to have a town with that kind of energy? Absolutely, absolutely. There was so much to cover, and you didn't want to be beat. And I had my, my editor at the time was Jonathan Volsky, maybe okay. you know Jonathan, you know, great guy. And Jonathan was, uh, he was Mr. San Juan back then. So he was somebody who was also just hugely invested in the town. And I learned a lot from him in terms of um, how to report, how to write, um, talking to people, how to develop sources, getting out there and, um, you know, uh, really understanding agendas and understanding how city councils work and things like that. Was the times a good competition back then? Absolutely. Yeah. This was a time when the register and the times and the times was then under uh, Marty Barron, mm -hmm. who's uh, now the, well, just recently retired uh, Washington post editor. Right. And back then it was a battle. It was a true battle for right. the uh, soul of orange County. We had the times orange County. And we had yep, the Orange County existent. Register. Yeah, in Costa yeah. Mesa. That's right. And they went toe-to-toe. Um, -to -toe. Absolutely. They they did um, they, they attempted to replicate much of what the Orange County Register was up to and they fought tooth and nail and it was a great, great it was great for the residents. Yes. Because there was so much information, so much news out there. When you see 
um, all these competitors that are out there, when, when you see more competition, it's always going to be greater for the, for the end user. Right. So the streaming competition, for example, you know, the streamers, Disney, Netflix, Hulu, um, HBO Max, all these, all these big companies going at it, it's producing really great content for the people on the, uh, watching it on the right. other side. So you wish you had that with newspapers today. Yeah. Newspapers are, uh, they're in a challenging place. Right. Right. So, right. you know, I can talk about newspapers for a long time and I, and I do in class. <laughs> yeah. But what I try to tell people is, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know. You can ask somebody when they think newspapers are going to go away and you might get five or six different answers if you're asking five or six different people. Right. Absolutely. Um, are they going to go away in five years? Are they going to go away in 10 years? I don't know. You know, there's still uh, there still is a revenue base for newspapers to be in place today, and so when you see newspapers are out there and the young people are wondering, well, what's going on? Why are there still these inky, these inky newspaper things that get everything dirty that you can't recycle and take up all the fossil fuels to print? And uh, they're there because the demographic are a lot of the elderly, the, mm-hmm. the elder folks. So you have folks who are 60 plus still reading the newspaper, right. still enjoying getting the newspaper. Well, guess what the majority of the population is right now in the U.S.? It's the elderly, right? So the younger folks are paying that Social Security, right? That's why there's a problem uh, because those folks are, um, you know, they're the majority. Right. And so that's why you still see newspapers out there today. Um, when I... When individuals and students ask me about, you know, are newspapers going to die? You know, I always say that, you know, I, I don't know, but it's the wrong question to ask. So the right question is, is great journalism going to survive? Yes. And absolutely. Absolutely. You're seeing some incredible work right now. So if you look onto some of the professional news sites, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, you're going to see some fantastic journalism. Um, you're going to see different ways of being able to present journalism visually, um, new tools and techniques. So the uh, Centers for Centers for Investigative Reporting, uh, ProPublica, uh, Der Spiegel, some of these groups that are using coding and Python to crunch data, to show you where uh, environmental disasters are happening, or to show you um, how the homeless is broken apart in different regions of, of the city. Um, that's the next generation of journalism, and it's fantastic. That's the the, uh, the projects that are coming out today. Would would you even even have been able to wrap your head around that kind of data when we were kids? No, no. I, w- I wasn't always the best investigative reporter. That was the toughest part. That yeah, was that's tough- a hard, that those guys don't get enough credit. No. That is a lot of work. That was a lot of work. You know, the the biggest project I worked on was a six month investigative project with a, a couple of team members and. Uh, we were looking at cost overruns for a uh, criminal justice center in Riverside County. And um, it, it, uh, it came to fruition after about six months of reporting. But I remember it was some of the most difficult reporting that I've had to do. Just, what, what made it so difficult for just you? You know, learning about how to tell a very long story, a very complicated story in a succinct way. Um, taking the reader on this journey and... Um, Helping them understand why this, why this big project, this over, these overruns mattered. And yeah, then, why they're important. And doing so in a way that you're using facts to, to guide the story, right? And um, luckily I had really good team members who actually did the, the uh, brunt of the work. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of those stories that I think 
get missed because it's so complex for the reader at the end. They're like, mm, do I care about the overrun or the this scandal or that? They just kind of go, I don't have time to read 140 inches of that stuff. Yeah, that's the challenge right and now. And it's a six-page episode. Yeah. You're like, oh, boy. Getting somebody to sit down with it. I, re- I recall we were talking about uh, Bartletti and Enrique's journey and mm-hmm. Sonny and Nazario and some of that stuff, that incredible work that we still show today, I still show in class because at one point, you know, it's, it's important for, I think, students to see where journalism was and how it was presented, how it was curated and crafted and written and photographed um, and visualized in the 90s and the 2000s to, and then figure out how is that same story going to be told now? Right. How is that same story going to be told in a year or two or five using new kinds of technology and new ways of being able to, to tell the story um, so that they kind of get their, their head wrapped around the idea that these are stories that have been told since the beginning of time or since the beginning of newspapers anyway. Mm-hmm. And they've just been told in different ways. Right. The message just delivered to the end customer is a little bit different. Yeah. A little audio slide, a little gallery. Now there's some video and yeah, it changes a little bit. And that's still, it's still the same story. Yeah. And it's important to absorb these new platforms and to figure out all these different ways to be able to tell these different kinds of stories because your audience is changing the platforms that they're changing. Uh, that they're using are changing. Just think about our smartphones like we talked about earlier was, you know, this little device replaced seven or eight devices in the home. Yeah. It replaced our tape recorder, it replaced our record player, it replaced our Rolodex, it replaced our calendar, our electronic organizer, it replaced our landline, it replaced our copy machine, it replaced our fax machine. Alarm clock. That's right. The silly thing like an alarm clock. How many people have a clock by their bed nowadays. That's right. That wakes them up. It's their phone. That's right. So what's around the corner? You know, what's around the corner in terms of um, how people are going to get their news? What's the evolution of social media? What's the evolution of how people are going to digest content? And you as a journalist need to be at that at that stage in which you're thinking about those kinds of platforms, how to use them properly. And then how to be able to convey that story either visually or textually or however it might be so that your reader can understand it and wants to understand it. You see this in the advertising age right now where advertisers lost the ability to make sure that you sat down and watched that show in the 1970s, you know, when 60 million people had to be in front of the TV to see uh, All in the Family. Or they had to see, there's 35 million people watching the MASH finale, and you had to sit through those commercials so that you didn't miss the show when it started. Well, advertisers lost that when the power came into the hands of the consumer, right? Now the viewer could decide to just swipe through it, or to fast forward through it, or to TiVo through it, or whatever the case might be. Right. But advertisers have actually managed to make this now a two-way communication. Right. So they want to get you involved in the story as well in a way that they do product placements in different ways or they make you actually want to click on the ad. Right. Because it's the celebrity who happens to be pitching this thing. And this is somebody you really enjoy seeing or you want to hear them or what do they have to say? So you'll see an evolution of, you know, how um, these mass media industries go about doing their job. And it's the same that with uh, journalists. Journalists have to understand how they do their jobs. How was the evolution for you 
regarding the internet now dragging a laptop around. Did you go to take to that well in um, your career? Yeah, it was it what was kind of fun to think about if you look back on it. We we started with ATAX, right? Word processing machines. Mm-hmm. So we're not going back into the hot lead type, no. you know, like Tom did. But a huge change. But a huge change, right? So yeah, we're looking at these electronic screens and um, we moved from that to some of those portable laptops that worked sometimes and didn't work other times. Right. Um, into larger laptops that actually were fairly um, fairly reliable and we could dock them in different places and we still didn't have that internet. We still didn't have that email just yet. Um, so it was, it was a difference. You know, it was a, it was a transformation, um, in terms of how we went about writing our stories because all of a sudden now we just, uh, you know, we could look things up. We could uh, send messages to other people. Searching. Research yeah. was a lot easier. We could do a little bit of research, yeah, you know. Um, and you move from the laptops into uh, tablets and smartphones and um, some of the technology that individuals are using today, you know, some of the digital photography and some of the drone photography that some folks use. Um, yeah, it's been a change. What doesn't change, though, is the foundation of, of how you do the work. You know, you still have to know how to do certain aspects of journalism. Um, you know, some students will enter the program wondering what journalism is. And, um, sure. It's, oh, absolutely. It's our role to begin, begin at that point. Right? When did you feel like you finally felt comfortable? Four or five years into your career? Or maybe even longer? You know, it was actually much sooner. Okay. Yeah. So a couple of years in, I really felt like I was doing something that was meaningful. You were still at the San Juan? Or yeah. You, okay. Yeah. And you felt like, okay, yeah. I got this. I got this. Yeah. It felt like something that was- Was there what, something that made you click? Like a story or a moment? Yeah. I think seeing, seeing my story in the actual Orange County Register, like on the cover of the Metro section back then or on the cover of the local section, you know, back then the Orange County Register- you know, was at the peak of its uh, circulation. Right. We're talking, you know, the 84 Olympics and uh, well, back then in 95 when I was there, um, you know, they were reaching 365,000 people every day. Yeah. If you wanted to know about Orange County, if you wanted to advertise anything in Orange County, if you wanted to have anything to, to do with any of the cities around Orange County, you had to get the Orange County Register. Right. And so seeing your name out there on such a, uh, such a prominent pro- uh, product was um, really meaningful. It sort of cemented the idea that, hey, what you're doing matters. People think it matters. You know, people want to read it and you get to see it. And it's just, uh, it was, uh, that's what helped me to do it. Feel like you were, you were there. Yeah. Absolutely. How long did you stay at San Juan? So I was there for about two years. Okay. And then I'm trying to remember the trajectory from there. So uh, I think I then took over from Jonathan um, as uh, the city editor, the community city editor. And so I was doing a little bit of both. I was writing, taking photos, and then laying out the paper. And uh, also had a... um, It's a lot of hats. Yeah, had a couple team team members too. So a reporter, another reporter. Still out of Lake Forest? Yeah, still out of Lake yeah. Forest. And then- Because a couple uh, of papers worked out of there, right? We had several. We had a- uh, They kind of hubbed that together. Yeah. We had seven to, um, I don't know, I want to say seven to 14 papers in South Orange County. Right. Because there was the Lewis building mm-hmm. and then downtown 
Santa right. Ana where the paper was out of, but then like there were still a couple of papers out of there and then Lake Forest. Lake and then Forest? there was still the post down in the very end if you had San God Clemente. forbid. Yeah. Yeah. In San Clemente. Yeah. So I did that for a while, and then um, I heard of a uh, an opening at the Press Enterprise. And I'm like, "What is the Press Enterprise?" <laughs> and Ben and I, uh, <laughs> what is this they call Riverside? <laughs> right. What is this Riverside? It was truly that because you know I had grown up in Santa Ana my entire life. I was living in Costa Mesa at the did time. Did you ever at any point, did you ever look at the San Bernardino Sun or the Riverside Press Enterprise? No. There was, a, it, you know, I, there was no reason to. I was, I was so concerned with looking at, um, like, the New York Times and the L.A. Times and my immediate competition. You know, remember, as a, you know, as a, as a newer reporter, it was, uh, I had four or five papers competing against me in San Juan Capistrano. Right. Right. So you had um, local papers. You had the L.A. Times. Um, you even were competing against the daily paper, the dip, the Orange County Register. You right. wanted to make sure that you OC had the story. Weekly. Yeah, OC Weekly. Did the Daily Pilot ever touch that far into San Juan? No, they stayed in Costa Mesa. Okay. Yeah, but we had the Dispatch. Oh, that's right. We had, um, which is still here, which is fantastic. You know, Norb does a good job. Um, and we had, um, we had a couple other papers at the time that I think have gone gone away. But you had competition. Oh, yeah. But you never, because, you know, the San Bernardino Riverside, they were producing some good stuff out there. Oh, there was extraordinary work that was being done. Extraordinary. It's just that we, we were kind of in a bubble here in Orange County. Right. And especially as reporters, you know, you're not really looking that far out. Um, especially if you got your head down. Yeah, I've got my head down. And um, I had my own staff, you know, and, and literally there was not a lot of free time. Sure. It was a, uh, it was a grind. It was a wonderful grind. It was pressure packed. But it was a grind. It was uh, early, early mornings and late, late nights. Um, and it, it, it much reflected what we did in college, except now you were getting paid and there was a lot more deeper consequences and, and it was a lot more serious, mm-hmm. serious minded. Um, and so I got this uh, I got this tip that uh, this fellow out in Colton working at the Press Enterprise needed somebody to cover that city. And, um, you know, I said, yeah, let, that'll be great. Let's check it out. And uh, I had no idea what Riverside was all about. I think I had driven through Riverside and um, <laughs> I had, didn't know what the press enterprise was. I had heard of the paper. I had heard of the San Bernardino Sun and the Daily Bulletin. And, uh, but I didn't really uh, understand what they were or what they covered. You know, I didn't understand how big Riverside and San Bernardino counties are. Yeah, Huge. you know, we are naive in that regard. There is a lot of space, especially San Bernardino, and a lot of people yeah. in those cities. Oh, yeah. And we play stupid and forget that. Right, right. Yeah, there's there's some large, it, it is large, they are large counties um, with fantastic cities. There are yes. some incredible cities to go through over there. Um, and so I I was, uh, I went and interviewed at the, um, at the Riverside Press Enterprise downtown on 14th Street. And this was in their old building. And um, it was in the middle of summer. And I was driving. <laughs> you can see where this one's heading. And I was driving in my little <laughs> Nissan hard body pickup truck without AC. Oh. And Suit and tie? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sweating and, it out. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember parking alongside the Press Enterprise building and um, just wondering, you know, kind of thinking about things. And... Um, Thinking about the newsroom there, the building. As soon as I walked into the building, that little newsroom, 
you know, when you compare it to the Orange County Register, which is, you know, the Orange County Register, the, the old building on, on Grand Avenue. Yeah, big five-story. Yeah, that, that newsroom was in movies. You know, right. that movie, that was a newsroom mm-hmm. that was filmed for movies and for other other programs that... Um, yeah, it's press on site. Mm-hmm. I mean, they even had, uh, they built that building with the ability to land helicopters on it. They didn't put the pad in, but it was structurally sound for landing. Like that building, that building was built ready to be a newspaper building. Yeah, it was impressive. Yeah. And every time we had to, we had to travel from Lake Forest or from the outlying bureaus to go to the Orange County Register. You know, there was a sense of gravitas when you entered that building. Oh yeah. You know, and with the people that Brass were there, railings coming in the lobby yeah, and that's everything. Right. Yeah, the, the the posters and the frames and. The people working there and, um, you know, you knew you were in, in, in a very special place, mm-hmm. a very special news place. Um, so I was in, I was in downtown Riverside. It's 102 or 103. Um, it's cool hot. morning. Yeah, it's hot. I enter their newsroom and, um, and the, you know, for, you know, I'll say a, a couple minutes, you start to think, is this what I want to do? Mm-hmm. Is this where I want to be? Um, I don't know anything about that area, but, you know, quickly I decide, you know, this is part of that career path. This is part of that trajectory. I've got to take off um, those journalism training wheels as a community reporter, become a daily staff writer. So if they offer me a gig, yeah, I'm absolutely going to take it. And um, actually it turned out that instead of uh, the city of Colton, they had an opening to be a uh, general assignment reporter in uh, Corona. Wow. Yeah. And I thought, this is pretty cool. I, yeah, I'll take it. You know, they gave me a choice. Hey, you want to work in Colton or you want to work in Corona? And I really didn't know where Colton was at the time. I just knew that it was further than Corona. Sure. And I was living in Costa Mesa and I said, absolutely. I'd I'd love to work in Corona. And so I worked at the bureau there on main street and was the general assignment reporter. So I covered most of, I covered the prisons and then most of Western Riverside County. Right. Yeah. That's another thing too. They've got a prison. It's a big place. There's an airport nearby. I mean, it's a big city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did that go? Take to it pretty well going out general assignment. Yeah. It was fantastic. And you know, I, those years that I spent at the press enterprise as a reporter, I really felt something special. What year is this? So this is 2000. And so I felt like I had made it. I felt like I was surrounded by professionals. I was surrounded by people who look like me. It was the first time that I had gathered with people who, um, it was one of the more diverse newsrooms. Um, and it was, it was exciting to see all of these individuals who were like-minded professionals wanting to put out great, great stories. It was a healthy newspaper at that time, right? <laughs> Absolutely. We were 200 and, um, I want to say two, it started 250, 260. Um, was that Sundays? No, that was daily. 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 Wow. Yeah, and then we went down to 220 or so, and um, yeah, the rest is history. But it was a very big, prominent, prestigious newspaper. So quiet. That sleeping giant out there. It was a sleeping so, giant. So yeah. quiet. And it controlled the Inland Empire. You know, it controlled, it was the biggest, it was the largest news gathering operation in all of the two counties. It was huge. They had a bureau in San Bernardino. They had a bureau in... Um, Temecula, Southwest County. Right. Yeah. They had a bureau in Palm Springs. They had a bureau. Well, they had a bureau in Palm Springs. Yeah. They had several bureaus. They had seven or eight well, different bureaus. you had bureaus. to. So big. Yeah. They competed against the Desert Sun. That's when I realized the, what it was like to be a real competitor because you were competing against the Daily Bulletin in Chino. Chino, right. You were competing against the Chino Champion, which was the local paper there. You were competing against the San Bernardino Sun, which covered all of San Bernardino. 
County, and then you were competing against the Desert Sun. And, oh, yeah, you were also competing against the LA Times and right, those that, folks who had a bureau right downtown as well. Um, there was a lot of different people you were competing against, and I think that's why the journalism was so damn good. There were some real heavy hitters there. They had to keep a razor's edge, otherwise you would have been crushed. Yeah, it was fantastic. And I remember sitting there at the time just thinking, based on what I knew at the Register, based on what I knew at the Press Enterprise, that the Press Enterprise reporters could go against it anybody around right they were really good at what they did um, so covering western riverside county was uh, sort of an eye-opener uh, in terms of being able to be a ga a general assignment reporter now i was responsible for figuring out how do i find stories what stories can i cover that nobody in the bureau is covering because they all had these beats and they all had the stories that were taken we all had city reporters covering norco we had city reporters covering Corona. We had an education reporter. And you're a new guy too. And I'm a new guy. So how did you research that city and get to know it? You know, what I did is I relied on what I knew at the, at the register. So what kind of Orange County news, because one of the reasons they brought me on was to try to absorb some of those stories that were just inside, just outside of Corona. Anaheim. So, yeah, Anaheim. Some of those things that our readers cared about. Silverado, like just the things that right. bordered. That's right. So we had the toll road, which is new at the time. Right. Uh, we had Corona, which continued to grow and get and get larger. Uh, we had Cal Anna- Baptist was out there, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And they were expanding. Yeah. Cal Baptist in, uh, in Riverside, actually. Right. Downtown. Yes. Yeah. And uh, they were expanding. The schools were getting bigger. Um, this place called Temecula was just was uh, continuing to burgeon and get bigger and bigger. Um, yeah, and that went from a sleepy little wine place, and now there's homes everywhere. Yeah, it's a big city. And um, Lake Elsinore was getting bigger. Lake Elsinore. And so what they were asking me to do was, hey, bring some of that Orange County knowledge, because what's happening now is you're starting to see the housing prices creep up in Orange County, and you're starting to see a lot of folks move from Orange County to flow the in, empire flow in right yeah right. they want corona to be their next orange county and they want temecula to be their next orange county um they're gonna want bigger houses they want more space they want better bang for their buck and so you're seeing a lot of these folks um immigrate into uh western riverside county and they still had their eye on orange county issues and orange county topics they still wanted to know about the angels they wanted to know about disneyland they wanted to know about well you're sharing freeways and the freeways. Know, all kinds of stuff yeah right traffic was important the toll road was well, yeah. important you know this how many people in orange county are going down the 91 back into riverside that's right that's right so they were doing that reverse commute what became the reverse commute right those folks from um, who moved from Orange County to maybe Corona or Temecula, and then all of a sudden they were driving back into Orange County uh, for their for their employment. And so what I did was I I took those different sort of subbeats, um, the toll road, Disneyland, um, thinking about housing, thinking about um, how people commuted, how people got a, got a, got around, um, and those became my stories. So those are the stories that naturally the city reporter couldn't pick up. Okay. Perhaps who was covering Corona or Norco, um, and but they were stories that I could absorb, that I could figure out. Hey, how, how do I make this a bigger story? Meanwhile, at the same time, I was covering the prisons. So one of the responsibilities I had was also covering the prisons in Chino. And so we had. Um, how they, was that? I mean, it's easy to say, but when you have to now cover a prison. Mm-hmm. That's a different animal. Yeah, it was. Um, we have a jail in Orange County. We don't have a state penitentiary. That's right. People get those two confused. They get jails and prisons confused, right? So, right. Um, 
covering the prisons was uh, it was one of the best beats I've ever had. Uh, no, was, that's uh, crazy to sound. It it's is. just out of your mouth to say that. Right. <laughs> covering prisons, great. Yeah. But why? Why it did was, it? It was a fantastic beat. Um, I think it was a window into a whole new place, right? So we think of prisons, perhaps, if you haven't, um, if you're not privy to some of what's going on in behind the prisons, um, you know, they were, they were these scary places with scary people and scary topics and scary issues that belonged way far away from what my life was and about. that's a men's and women's prison. Oh, we had a men's, we had the men's prison, the CIM. We had the women's prison, CIW. We had the Norco, the Norconian, the drug prison. And then we had the Stark Correctional Facility just outside of Corona. Um, so there were four different places to cover. And um, was that just completely eye-opening to Completely you? eye-opening, yeah, right. Almost like just enthralled, like, wow. Yeah, a new place. So I, I covered one of, the, one of the more important stories. I, I knew I was doing something really important at the time when I was, um, I was covering a Senate hearing. It was the first Senate hearing that was being held uh, in a prison complex. Um, and it had to do with um, a bill that was looking at making um, uh, battered women's syndrome an, an actual defense. So up until that point, essentially, if you were a woman who was getting beat to death um, in these domestic situations and somehow you murdered your abusive spouse or killed your abusive spouse, then you would um, you didn't have a defense. You couldn't use anything as a defense. And so you had a lot of women behind bars who had murdered a abusive spouse and they wow. were serving life sentences. And so there was a Senate bill that was put forth to try to change that, to try to allow for this battered women's syndrome defense. And I got to cover that Senate hearing and I got to meet some of these women who had these incredible stories to tell um, about their lives and what it was like to live in that fear and to live in that environment and how they were trying to help you know, save their kids from these abusers. And what they got out of it was a prison sentence. And um, that's when I realized that as you tell stories through people's eyes, these individuals had some remarkable stories to tell. I wonder how many more kinds of stories are out there. And so I continued to you know, foster the beat. I did stories about um, the firefighting program, the women's firefighting program out of the California Institution for Women. Um, you've, there are many stories nowadays that have been put out there, but I think I was able to do you know, one, of the, one of the first uh, sort of really um, good looks into what it was like to be a female firefighter right. on this prison duty. Now, for something like that, do you get to pick or to, to say like, hey, I want to work with so-and-so as a photographer? You know, you can. If you have a, um, as you know, you, you don't really, um, I think they look down upon uh, trying to select your photographer right. or, or your photographer trying to select your reporter that you want to work with. However, if you both have like-minded ideas and you say, hey, you know what, I've got an idea about this kind of story. Um, you were with me last time when you were here at the prison. What do you think? And so you might approach your editors and say, hey, you know what? We've got this idea. Or oftentimes it might be the photographer who is taken, who is noticing other things that were going on around the prison while you were interviewing somebody. Mm -hmm. And they think, this is a good story. I wonder if we, should, we can do something like that because you're, this is your beat. This right. is the, the prison Because some beat. photographers are just better at a longer project. 
they can make better photos over a project that might be two or three weeks or depending on how long your female firefighter story and other right. ones, they just don't work like that. Right. It's just nature. So reporters are the same way. Yep. They cannot, like we were talking about investigative, they can't work on a six month project. Right. They don't have the mindset, the tools. They just, they don't work that way. Yep. They're That's a true. beat guy and they just bang out stories. Boom, yep. boom, boom. That's right. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's, it was, it, I had this sort of drive when we talked about earlier thinking about the reporting aspect and the writing aspect. So I was really, I was really into the craft. Like, how do I make my reporting better? How do I make my writing better? And so I would study other writers. I would study other people's, other journalists' um, story structures to figure out where did they, how did they structure this longer story? Or if they were writing about a topic that I knew about, how did they, how, what kind of questions did they ask? And I, Tell my students nowadays, when you're looking at stories, um, you know, professional news story, and something is of interest to you, sort of do the calculus, kind of dissect the story and try to figure out what kind of questions did the reporter have to ask to elicit that response from their subject so that you could write that same kind of story. How did that work? What were some of the vocabulary they used? How did they transition from the middle of that paragraph all the way back to the beginning of the story? You know, what did they use? What were the techniques? So. Right. How long did you work on a story like that? The firefighter, female firefighter story? You know, I think that was actually, that was a quick one. That was only a couple of days. Okay. Yeah. That one was a fairly fast one, but we did, there were plenty of stories in the prison system. Um, <laughs> we did stories about the, um, I did, I've, I've gone on drug raids with the uh, correctional officers at um, the uh, prison in Norco. Um, and in that case, what was fascinating was um, how they sort of explain the way drugs were smuggled into the prison. Right. It was fascinating. You know, you would melt the you would melt the um, the drug onto the envelope seal and then mail that letter like as if you were just mailing a letter. Right. And once they had it in the, in, you know, once they were in, it was inside the prison, they would melt the glue and that glue would turn into the drug or would be part of the drug. Or you would, um, you know, you would have somebody who was working in the industry, the canning industry, where you could um, open cans of tuna and you could melt the drug on the back of the cap and then you could seal it again and import that into the prison system. Um, so there were some really interesting, uh, that's so amazing the, yeah. the, the, what they would go through to get a drug in a damn prison. Yeah, we did these, we did these, we did these drug raids and I, I was the reporter covering, um, what the correctional officers were doing. And, you know, you'd go and you'd see actual, you know, pruno, you would see the, the fermented fruit that they would put into bags with water and stash them in the toilet or stash them in like a tank somewhere. Right. Um, and that would make alcohol, you know, after a certain time. Um, so there were stories like that. There and this was, is a minimum. This isn't in a maximum or a super max. This is a minimum facility. Norco was minimum. The uh, CIM and CIW, I think, were max. Were they? Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, CIM was no joke. CIM oh, was... Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not white collar and people are playing golf oh, no. and stuff. It's not a federal prison like no. that. It's, it was... Uh, so CIM, if you have a chance, um, do you remember American Me? That yes. Movie? So that's CIM. Okay. That was filmed in CIM. And, um, you know, I remember the first time I walked into CIM to uh, do a story about something. I don't remember what the topic was. But I remember walking with the uh, warden and um, the warden says, hey, you know what? We're going to we're, we're going to go from one side to the other side. So uh, what you need to know is to just stay down the middle line. 
Uh, there's a middle line that we're going to walk down and don't veer off that middle line either way. And I said, okay, you know, thank you very much. I had been covering prisons. I hadn't been in there just yet. And so you enter that place. And as you know, from the movies, there's the cell blocks are lined on top of each other, you know, three or four stories stacked, high right. stacked. And once you enter that, that walkway, then the, the, uh, the greeting begins. So you've got, um, a crescendo kind of like as you're, I kind of think of it as you're, uh, you're watching the Kentucky Derby and as they turn for home, uh-huh. <laughs> right? The crowd gets into it. So anyway, let's just say the crowd gets into it. Um, and you're walking and they're yelling and they're hooping and hollering. And do they realize you're a reporter? Oh yeah. Well, they, they see you, you're in your tie. They know you're a stranger. Got a credential. Yeah. Yeah. They can't see it, but I've got it on there. And, right. um, what the, what the warden is attempting to say is, Hey, just, you know, pay attention. Um, don't veer off left Nobody or right. Nobody can reach you. That's right. At this Nobody point, can you're reach safe you. in the zone. Nobody can throw things at you. You yeah. can't really, so you're kind of out of the reach. <laughs> so make sure that you don't veer from that line. And I remember, I still remember, um, what it was like to do that. And it was both frightening uh, extremely frightening, but also exhilarating. Just like, wow, this is what I cover. I cover this place. And so, you know, that was one of the things I remember too. The, you know, another story I remember is, um, that I recount to people is, is sitting across from the, um, the Manson followers. Oh, so the Manson, um, some of the Manson women are incarcerated at uh, CIW, the women's prison every year. They're up for parole. I happened to be there um, on one assignment in which uh, they were making something called happy hats. And happy hats. Yeah, these happy hats. And what are those? So these happy hats are uh, <laughs> different colored felt that they would sew together for sick kids in hospitals. So how about the irony in that, right? Um, they were making these happy hats. And it's they were diligent. Part of, their- part of their programming, part of what they volunteered to do. And um, I was sitting there across from you know, the Manson women and talking about happy hats. And of course I was asking them about the past, but you know, they're, they're, um, sitting there doing their needle and thread or they're whatever. Doing their, yeah. They're doing their sewing and they're not going to give you much. They're just, uh, you know, I'm in for 187, and, um, that's it. Let's talk about happy hats. <laughs> okay. But it's a window into people's lives. And what I tell, you know, what I tell individuals when you're covering a story like that is, um, you know, use your professionalism, right? So you, you don't have to empathize. You don't have to understand. You don't have to imagine. You don't have to feel. You don't have to whatever. Because what you need to really do is just make that connection and let that individual know, let that subject know that um, you're listening to them and you are hearing them. You are listening to them as they are speaking to you. And what they are saying is important enough to document and to write down um, and you're having that connection, similar to what you and I are doing right now. Right. Right. You, you have that professionalism in any kind of different story you're doing. Yeah. That's all you want. Yeah. How, how did you guys treat September 11th? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, interesting that's something, you know, topic. Yeah. yeah. We forget. That was a crazy day for everybody. Mm-hmm. How did you how did you treat that? So different papers did different things at the time. So most of the um, newspapers were still very newspaper first. Very, mm-hmm. you know, that was that was their bread and butter. Um, I happened to be on vacation in Texas, San Antonio, seeing my family. Right when nine eleven struck. Oopsies. Yep. <laughs> 
Well, I, mean, I guess it's not an oopsie. You don't know. Well, you don't know, yeah. right? And so, um, you know, I had my mom waking me up uh, saying, you've got to see this. You've got to see this. And of course, I think it's my, my mom is just waking me up just to see a car crash right. down the street. Right. And I'm like, no, 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 no. So I finally get up and I see what um, what all the news is about. And it's just, it's extraordinary. And my editors are on the phone with me. They reach my sister's house in Texas and tell me. They were me, able to find you. Yeah. And tell me, get back. Really? Yeah. Get back. And I said, okay. How far into this vacation are you? A couple of days? You're at the end? You no, know, I, don't, I don't recall. I just remember thinking, okay. Um, is it I'll, just you on vacation? Yeah, just me. Okay. And I just went to see family. And I said, okay, um, all right, Tony, I'm on my way back. And, um, and I started to think, well, how am I going to get back, Tony? <laughs> right. Because <laughs> everything is shut down. I, I can't take a plane. I can't take a train because I flew out there. Uh, it's kind of a long walk. <laughs> yeah. Do you want me to you want me to rent a car? Is that what I'm doing? Is renting a car and driving for two days? When in two days they may open up the trains again, or they may open up the skies. Who who knows? We all don't hell know. might break loose even more. That's right. You know, it was still what for you nine in the morning. That's we right. We have no clue what's going on. No, we don't know what's happening. Pennsylvania hasn't even happened yet, right? I mean, it's just total chaos that right, day. Right. So I'm glued to my TV the way they are, and um, you know, I'm basically stuck. There's not real. There's, so the decision was you're sitting. I'm sitting for a while. And that's essentially what I did. You know, I had to, I had to sit this one out and just kind of uh, wait until I got back. And I think, I, I think I actually got back four or five days later. Um, I'm trying to remember how with I got everybody back. else when things opened up. I, I think when things opened up, I got back as soon as they, as soon as they yeah, opened up. It was a long up, week. It was, it was. Um, and um, yeah, it, you know, the, it, an interesting study with the nine eleven is I tell individuals, I tell students that, you know. Um, they put out a lot of newspapers, including the Register and the Press Enterprise, put out uh, afternoon special editions. Mm -hmm. I said that was the version of updating the web. Right. That was the newspaper's version of updating the story, telling yeah. you that this is important enough that we're going to go and run those presses, put the paper through there, throw them on the trucks and deliver them to your house. And think about that. I, I asked this question when I was at the Register at that time, and they were like, uh, I don't know the last time we did that. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody in the newsroom weeks later knew. Right. They were like, maybe Reagan's assassination attempt? Mm. Nobody, because there wasn't anything like that. Shuttle, maybe? But everybody was kind of like, mm, good question. Right. It was a big deal. It was a huge deal. And it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars for newspapers, or tens of thousands for news, most newspapers to put those things out. Um, but it was an extraordinary time, right? And it did was. You, did you read the paper there, in San Antonio? Did you? Oh yeah. Take it all in. See oh what yeah. You can San Antonio Express News, looking at that paper, and Dallas Morning News, and seeing what that was about, and yeah, pretty extraordinary for, stuff. For a journalist sitting like literally on the bench watching this one, did that kind of hurt? Yes, initially it did. Um, I, I I tend to just want not not being in the game, right? Yeah. Like I'm watching this big story being played over and over on TV mm -hmm. and in your blood, you're just ready to like grab a pad and a pen and just go to work. Right. And you've I'm got ready to put my running shoes on right. and, and come back. And mom's just sitting there with you on the couch. Yeah. Mom was just like, uh, you know, just, it was trying to convey to her that, you know, this thing was so important. I had to get back and, and then basically explaining there's no way to get back. 
You yeah. can't go back to Orange County right now. You know, you got to wait it out a little bit. And from what I recall, um, I think it, it wasn't too shortly, too short after that that I, I was able to get back. And we were we were still very very deep into the nine eleven post oh. stories. Oh yeah. You know the security, the amped up security, the um, potential targets. You know what what was going on. We had never seen this before. You know what was next. Right. I mean, you and I are talking about this twenty years later, but if people can remember. It went for weeks. Like oh, yeah. we were still going, oh, we good? Mm-hmm. Next? Yeah. Going to happen? Mm-hmm. What do we do? Mm-hmm. I'm not going anywhere. Right. Everybody was kind of worried about everybody else. Right. God forbid if you had a neighbor now who's a Muslim wearing a headdress, everybody's looking at you like, right. huh. Right. Yeah, it was a very, was a- like as much as we're dealing with COVID, it was way different. Mm-hmm. This is the first time. Like for you and I, we were alive. We never were alive during Pearl Harbor. So this was our first like kind of war attack on American soil. Yeah. And I think what was even more stark was, was, and sort of sobering was the fact that it was a, it was the first of the major 24 hour news cycles. Yes. Um, You know, even the broadcast news uh, cast, you know, they couldn't. It was it was a puzzle trying to figure out what to edit and how to edit and what you were showing because this was this was unfurling on real on live TV, right? And it was a challenging thing for these networks. I feel bad for the networks at the time because people were jumping off of roofs and all of a sudden I remember the broadcasters talking about oh there's glass that's falling off the uh, and it wasn't glass that was falling from the buildings it was people falling from it the was buildings people. Where you would get to the point in time where you were at the Windows of the World restaurant uh, at the Empire State Building and thinking, this is a better option for me to jump than to stay inside of this building. Yeah. Um, And so it was a 24-hour news cycle. And you would see that 24-hour news cycle play out again um, during the war, during the 2003 war. Well, I heard reporters producers later talk about whether they were on CNN or Fox or local talking about, should we show footage of the security footage of the plane going into the Pentagon? Like, was that right? Or everybody was like in this new age of like, we want to show it immediately. What do we show? Mm -hmm. Do we replay planes going in for the six o'clock news? Like it was, you know, especially if you were a New York TV station, like, do you want to keep showing this? And they did. Yeah. They didn't know. Yeah, it gets back to, you know, the idea behind newspapers on the dinner table, you know, newspapers on the family breakfast table. You know, we have to be mindful of the things that are on the cover because we know that our readership includes kids who might come by and see this. And um, that was a big deal back then. Right. Being very mindful of what you had in, in your newspaper. Same thing with broadcast or in these during these calamitous events catastrophic events where things are unfurling in real time, you know, what are you going to air? What are you not going to show? Yeah. It w- it's the now famous jumping, they call it, I think they call it jumping man, but it's the, I think it's an African American man. He's in a business suit, yeah. you know, and he's upside down kind of spinning yep. and yep. it's just got the lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was huge discussions mm-hmm. for weeks. Do we show this photo? Yeah. Like it was enough to show the, the building's on fire, but to show him. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about that in the class. You know, we talk about that, that photo, which, which didn't, which didn't go anywhere. No, it, it, uh, you know, even the AP, the AP took it and nobody, nobody put the photo up. And I always ask the class, Hey, do you, would you put this photo up? 
And a lot of them, a lot of students will look at it and go, yeah, we would, I would use that photo. And that's now, that's 20 now. years later. Yes, that's now. Their, their social media has, has diluted their eyes. Like this is 2001. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like we said, 24 hour news was still in its infancy. Right. I mean, right. now everybody's like, sure, I'd run it. Of course. Right. You know, well. Yeah. We have a good discussion about that, the jumpers. And, um, we show that very photo that, that very photo of that individual. And I always, you know, I always leave, leave off that discussion with the idea that, Hey, if you want to find out more about this guy, who he was, there was actually a documentary that was done about this individual. It was very, you know, it was, it was, um, very appropriate. And they talked to the family and there's a memorial for these individuals. And, um, there's more to the story than just the photo. In other right. Words. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's one of those things where it's easy to look back 20 years later and for those kids to say yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In journalism today is not what it was 20 years ago. No, things have changed. Right. Um, you know, what we are seeing on social media. I mean, we, we're even talking about, um, the things like the Kobe Bryant crash, right? So the fact that, um, you know, where did you find out about this? How did you find out about this? Well, I found out through a tweet or I found out through social media um, via TMZ, right? TMZ broke right. the story. But if, you know, you recall, it was an hour or two until you could find that story on any other professional news site. They all waited. They all waited. They had to wait because, you know, if you were the L.A. Times, this was your backyard and God forbid you get this story wrong. Right. Then your credibility is at stake. You've made this horrible mistake. Uh, there's and it's Kobe. It's not. It's and I Kobe. hate to say this. It's not another player. No. Which doesn't make it any better, but it's Kobe. Yeah. And there's all these consequences attached to getting something like that wrong. Mm-hmm. You want to get it right. And so I thought that was, a, it's an interesting study when you think about, I remember seeing the, the story on TMZ and going, really? Did that really happen? What do I think? TMZ, okay. I know they've got some, some really dogged reporters out there that are, that are in the courthouses. They've got some people who are good at following individuals. But wow, I can't find this anywhere else. How come I can't find this on the LA Times? How come I can't find this, you know, LA Times who ostensibly follow the Lakers and Kobe more so and better than anybody else on the planet. Why don't I see that? There's got to be something going on. So part of it, of course, was um, waiting know, on the sources, right? Waiting on the sources and, and, and waiting on the family. I mean, you know, let, let's, you know, the, the, the reality is, is that it, the question still is out there about whether the family, all the families do what was going on. You know, yeah, when because this, there was multiple families to tell, not oh, just Kobe's family. Oh, yeah, there were, there were three different families, I think, involved in the crash. Like that, yeah. Yeah. So, so you have to get to three different groups and communicate, communicate with them this horrible incident. Yeah, that's where the ethics come in. You know, the next of kin. You want to make sure that those people are not going to find out about you know, their, what happened to their loved one in your story. Right. So September 11th happens. And for some reason, in 2003, you raise your hand and decide, <laughs> I would really like to go to the desert. Yeah, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't raise any hands. I was... I was uh, <laughs> well, you didn't take a step back. What, what no. made you think or feel like you wanted to go and cover war? Oh, you know how that was, Matt. We were all invincible. And so it was, I was doing my regular job. I was covering Riverside now as a GA. Okay. So they and, moved you into downtown Riverside. Yeah, I was in downtown. Was I covering? I was covering City Hall, or I was a, a GA. I don't remember what what or a county reporter. Um, and um, Maria 
Devereen pulls me in and um, to her office and says, "Hey, I'd like to know if you'd be interested in this in in this story," you know. And she laid it out. Hey, Belo, Belo Newspapers or Belo Incorporated, which owns the Dallas Morning News and the Providence Journal and the Press Enterprise and King Radio Station in Seattle and all these other media outlets, would you be interested in being a part of this war correspondent team that would be operated and overseen by George Rodrigue, who is just the who is um, who is then the Washington bureau chief uh, for the uh, for Bilo okay. for the newspapers? Um, his most recent gig was he was the uh, he was the editor in chief of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Okay, and um, George had been the previous editor in chief of the uh, Press Enterprise. And had gone to Iraq and covered the first Persian Gulf War okay. for the Dallas Morning News and was and won a Pulitzer, and so he was running the team. And um, she had said, "Do you want to? You know, do you think you might want to do something like this? Here's what here's what we think." Now, how many people do you think they, did they ask, or did they just pick you? Uh, I've never heard otherwise. I think it was just me. Okay. Um, what do you think they saw that you were ready for this? I think based on the stories, the dearth of kind of the breadth of stories that I've done. So the prisons, Disneyland, the opening of California Adventure, you know, the toll roads, talking to people, um, covering um, these larger stories in um, Riverside County, um, coming up with these overall ideas. So as a general assignment reporter, I was always coming up with ideas. Um, give you an example. So when I was in Corona, I thought, huh. There were so many horse racing farms out here back then, and they breed millions of dollars in horse flesh. And what I'm seeing, though, is I'm seeing all these homes that are being built on these farms. Like they're encroaching on the farms. And so I spent a week traveling all throughout Riverside County, going to these horse racing breeding farms and finding out that there was this there was a crisis like horse racing was going away because all of these developments were encroaching. Squeezing it on them? Yeah. And it was no longer healthy to raise these racehorses. And it was difficult because the farms now are worth millions and millions of dollars. It was too valuable. And so I did this story about um, how horse racing was contracting uh, throughout the Inland Empire. It was taking jobs with it and how development wasn't oh, getting... Wow. And so I think what they saw perhaps is... Uh, um, that kind of that kind of thought process, tenacity and digging. You yeah. got to be able to do it. Yeah, being able to see kind of these stories everywhere you look. Um, and so, yeah, we got. I I was in there, and um, I'll be honest. It was it was it was a courtesy. It was what I felt I needed to have a courtesy window to say, "Can I think about it overnight?" Right, but I knew I was going. There was no way I was not going to go. So I just wanted to make sure my my mom at the time and my dad weren't, weren't going to get sick with worry. And um, But my answer was absolutely, you know, because I was still that reporter who wanted to cover all these different stories. I had so far covered all of these different kinds of stories. I was also covering military affairs at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I had covered the military. I had covered prisons. You know, this was the next the next step. And I, working for a guy like George Rodriguez, absolutely. I want to work for a Pulitzer Prize winning guy from the first Persian Gulf War. So they yes. team you and Dave up. Yeah. How does that go? What's, oh, the, what's the next step? Oh my goodness. Well, I know, but what's the next step? We're like, okay, they say, okay, it's you and Dave. What do you do? So we, we start doing those pre-planning meetings, figuring out who the editors are and um, putting us in touch with the uh, George Rodriguez and some of the folks who are running the, um, 
the uh, the teams, and then um, getting us uh, sort of um, equipped. You know, finding out we're having to get attorneys, and we're having to get um, last will and testament. We're having to put our affairs in order. Believe it or not, we're having to. Did that make you nervous at all? You know, it was a, it was an interesting reality. Is that the because, first time you've thought about that at that yeah, moment? Absolutely. You know, it was. Uh, Who's it, getting my pickup truck? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, where's everything going? Um, it was certainly something to think about. It was more interesting and fascinating at the time than it was macabre. It was me kind of thinking, wow, this is interesting. You know, usually I'm writing about other people who are doing these things and um, I'm the subject. Yeah, now. now they're handing you the paperwork to sign. Yeah, part of it was just the adventure. And um, we now had to go travel to Washington to go get inoculated. Uh, for all these different kinds of diseases. They couldn't do that and, in Colton? You know, some like, of the, really? You had to go all the way to D.C. to get... We had to go, no, not to D.C., to Washington State, to one of the uh, it's an Army base. Washington so, State? Yeah. So we had to go there. 29 Palms was right here. Right. So we had to go there to get inoculated for, of all things, anthrax. It was one of the few places in the entire country that could uh, inoculate you for anthrax. Oh. So I'm inoculated against anthrax. Wonderful. So in a dystopian world, if things go south and the zombies take over, <laughs> I won't get anthrax. Yeah. Um, so we had to do a lot of that. We had to do a lot of traveling to Loma Linda to get those other inoculations that we needed. Um, malaria, things like that. Smallpox. So what, what month did they ask you? Are you interested? I don't remember if it was January because we left in March. So there's, there's, there's at least a good two 60 days yeah, for there's, you. There's a good amount of time. And a lot of that is prep. So go out, buy yourself a sleeping bag, <laughs> buy yourself a um, sleeping pad, get yourself some boots. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they give you, a, I mean, who's, who's around at the, at the paper that tells you, because nobody's probably yet covered war that's still even there at the time, like, yeah, you're going to want to learn how to do this, this, this. I think it came from the team. So it came from uh, it came from Washington, D.C. Okay. So George Rodriguez saying, hey, this is what all the team members are going to need. So this is what we want to supply them with. Um, they're going to need uh, ceramic plates. You know, that was for the, that was for the bullets. Mm -hmm. And you're going to need flak vests for the shrapnel. And you're going to need to get a helmet. You know, you have to have goggles. That, get that through the military. Boots, get right? Goggles, yeah. Did you get boots, start breaking them in immediately? Because you don't want to have raspberries on your feet. Yeah, I don't remember if we did. I think so. Yeah, we did. I did that. And then we had, uh, when we actually got into the field, then we had to carry a gas mask as well. And mm -hmm. we had to carry the injectables. Um, For the thigh or something, yeah. Yeah, right? because remember the premise was that there was... Uh, WNDs and yeah, all WNDs that, right? WNDs and poison out there. And um, if we were afflicted by that stuff, we had to use those those uh, gas cartridges, one to uh, speed up our heart, to sweat all that stuff out. And then the other one was used to slow our heart down so it didn't blow up. Right. Now, I saw the photos of you guys putting on gas masks. Was that kind of real when you're starting to do that kind of yeah. training? Like, oh, shit, Dave. Yeah. We're really in this. Yeah. I think the first time it was, we, we joked around and I, I kind of, I put it out there to kind of tease David a little bit, but was the night of the invasion. Okay. So the actual night of the invasion, um, you know, middle of the night, you can imagine being in the desert. So 29 Palms, maybe middle of the night and um, surrounded by all the Marines. And then all of a sudden the, um, the howitzers that were from 29 Palms, the big howitzer line starts Starts shelling, starts shooting shells overhead. Right, one hundred fives just start flying. Yeah, you and you. I remember thinking, those poor people, like they're on the other end on, of on it. the other end of that. Where where are those landing? 
Like, oh my goodness. Seven miles away and putting yeah. a hole in the earth. Yeah, and it was a pretty extraordinary. And then that's when everybody said, let's go. It was, it was dark. Everything was night vision goggles. Uh, everything was light sticks. And we were in the lead car. We were one of the lead Humvees with the so, captain. So what's your responsibility? What do they tell you? Guys, Mike, Dave, this is what we're looking for. What do they tell Like, What's your idea for the story? You know, basically we, were, we weren't the tip of the spear. We weren't um, Central Command. We weren't writing the big New York Times piece. Um, instead, we were writing about our local Marines from Pendleton. Okay. So we were attached to the 7th Engineer Support Battalion. Which was essentially kind of like, if you if you will, and I hope I'm not uh, muddling it too bad, but it was kind of the CBs of the uh, of the Marines. Mm-hmm. These were the guys who fixed things. These were the guys who built things. These were the guys who cleared all the mines. Right. These were the guys who fixed the roads, who built the roads, the lanes, and cleared the the landmines and the bombs so that the uh, infantry could. Right, because Camp Pendleton is in Riverside County. Part of it touches Riverside County. Mm-hmm. People forget that. It mm-hmm. touches two or three counties, right? Orange County, San Diego, and yeah. Riverside. Yeah. It's massive. Yeah. And so we were following this group, and essentially it was, it was a great focus for us because what they had, um, our mandate was follow, follow our guys, okay. but follow the people from our area, especially. So we were there to write stories about the individuals from Riverside and San Bernardino County who happened to be part of right. that, Camp, that Camp Pendleton engineer group, which was great because all we did was walk around looking for people from our area and then basing our stories on that. You right. know, what was it like? Gary to, from Norco or whatever. Right. What was it like to be there in, in war? What was it like to, um, you know, write that letter of demise? You know, what was it like? How do you pass your time? Right. What's your specialty here? What do you do when um, you're jumping from camp to camp? You know, who do you have back home? Um, For you, technology-wise, what are you taking? Laptop? Yeah, so we have a laptop, and we have uh, each of us uh, have a laptop, and then we have a, a satellite phone. Mm-hmm. But our satellite phone had a um, antenna, antenna array that you could open up. Right. And so we would get that antenna array. It would have a compass on it. And so we would take the compass, and we'd point to try to find the East Indian Ocean, and then we would get certain bars based on where we were pointing. And then we got what we needed. I think, I think the number was 544 still. Okay. I still remember that. It had to be like 544 <laughs> or above. Then we would uh, be able to send our story. How long did it take you to send your story? Because it's much smaller than a photo. Oh, yeah. David had it much, much worse than I did. Um, it, I, don't, I don't recall. I think it was minutes Five right. minutes, ten minutes, something like that. Right. Um, sometimes it could be aggravating. You know, I know for David, it was a, it was a lot more work. He had a lot more to did more you, to do. Working with him, did you did you help say okay? Did you help him edit? Say I go with this one, go with that one, or was he on his own? Um, if he asked me, you know, okay. if, if he asked me, because it's tough. Would, you can't send forty photos. No, no. Really we'd, editing and picking and choosing. We'd go through them. And David was very, you know, David's a, he's a fun guy. He's very vocal too. And we got along great. So oh, he's a wonderful person. Yeah. David would, he would oftentimes just show me his photos and say, Hey, so what's your story about? And I would tell him, and he's like, well, these are the photos that I'm thinking. These are the images I'm thinking about doing. And, um, so we talk it out and, you know, we, and we, we would kind of, you know, we would dig on each other cause we're, you know, we're just, we're friendly. We're very right. friendly. So you had to have that kind of personality to be able to be locked in with a guy for, in a tent for, you know, 60 days or right. almost, almost 60 days. That, not like you guys were camping. Right. This is war. Right. It turned out to be a really bad long camping trip, but this was war. Yeah, right. We didn't know. 
um, we had to sleep in the same tent for a long time and, you know, share the same space. And so, you, you know, you, you better like the person that you're with. Right. How long week, two weeks in, are you starting to feel like, Ooh, wow. What the hell? This is crazy. Or were you getting comfortable? I was getting pretty comfortable. You know, you get, once you get used to, um, how the rhythm is setting up, you know, the stories that you're going to go out and get, um, and, and it was always, it was somewhat busy all the time because we were turning in stories almost daily. Like I would tell David, Hey, you know, I write a lot. And so I write a lot and I write fast. And so I, I tried to turn in a story almost daily. And with that story that was turned in daily, we also had photos that were turned in daily too. Right. And so the paper had, we had consistent coverage. We were on the paper consistently. Now, what was the time difference for you? Your deadline here in Riverside was what time for you? Yeah, we were, I think we were 11 hours. So we were 11 hours um, ahead. If I, if I remember correctly, I hope I'm not, I'm not ballpark. So if that's, what was your deadline for Riverside? Nine o'clock, 10 o'clock? Something like that. Yeah. So I was turning in stories at, um, you know, in the dark, in the dark for them to have um, in time to go to press. Um, And we did that daily, you know, and when, when we got there, the idea was, um, you know, we're covering these stories. We're trying to figure out, you know, how to, how to maximize our safety. So that was one thing that our editor said, Hey, you know what? We want you to make sure that you are making the right decisions based on safety. And that was a big deal. And David and I would often sit back and based on where we knew our guys were heading, we would sit back and we would think about what was this, what were the safety issues? Because we knew that if we violated the safety protocols that our paper wanted us to adhere to, you know, they could yank us back. What were they? What were they worried? I mean, they don't want to lose anybody, but what were their safety protocols? So they tried to get us to make sure that if there was any way to avoid um, going through an area of conflict where we knew there was a for certain aspect or a heavy, um, a heavy percentage of aspect that we were going to have to engage in some kind of um, either small arms fire or we knew this was a dangerous place like the, the, uh, the triangle out there, um, that we would avoid it if possible. Okay. And we did that. Yeah, so, they don't need you to be on CNN being dragged across right. like those poor bastards in Somalia. They right. don't need that. We weren't those guys. Yeah. You know? And so we, we and they don't want that. That's correct. They want you to make a story, but they don't want you to become it. Right. And we, and we understood that. And that was, and that was fantastic because um, it, it set some guidelines for us and it helped us to understand, you know, what, what kind of rules we wanted to, to abide by, despite the fact that we, Hey, we got this great story. No, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't fall into the safety protocols. So yeah, there there were occasions where we knew, for example, um, based on the um, the information that Central Command was passing on to our commanders and our colonels and such, hey, we're probably going to take small arms fire at this junction. So far, everybody who's gone through here has taken small arms fire, some grenades. Um, do you? We have another option here. We're also going to put a bird in the air, like a super stallion, and we're going to fly. Um, supplies or what have you to this to this area, and we're going to meet there and build camp. You guys can come with us, or you can go on the bird. And so we went on the bird. Sure. So we would take the helicopter. The mustaches. Whose idea was that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it all comes down to comfort. It all comes down to not wanting to shave every day, and you know, 
you packed what you could carry. You didn't want to grow a full beard, though? You know, I don't think I could. I was just, I was doing what I could at the <laughs> That's time. That's all you had. That's all I had. Lips. That's all I had. And, um, yeah. You can't send a man to war with you who can't grow a mustache. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, we have great photos of that, too. It was, uh. Oh, that was the best. They're looking through the research. Dave's got this glorious, like, fireman, That's you know, right. mustache. And Tom Selleck. Yeah. Yours was just hanging in there. That's Let's right. leave it at that. Yeah. It was just hanging in there. That's fair. <laughs> what did you take away from those 60 days? You know, the capability of sort of my own personal capabilities, what I was able to do, you know, what I was able to accomplish um, I, I came away feeling pretty proud that I was out there for that amount of time producing that kind of content. Um, and when I came back, you know, getting that, getting that letter from George Rodriguez, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning writer for and covered the Persian first Persian Gulf War and sending that handwritten letter that said, Mike, you did a hell of a job out there. You know, we're proud of the work you did. And it's like, yeah, you did it. You accomplished this. This is great. You know, this is fantastic. Um, it actually started to open the door because I started to begin thinking about, you know, do I want to go down this path? Do Long I want term to, thinking? Yeah. Do I want to? Um, do I want to try to be a permanent foreign correspondent? Do I want to try to be a permanent uh, war correspondent? Um, and other things were happening in life at the time. You know, other opportunities, and um, that's when I decided. You know, I'm, I'll, I'll probably go this other route. And that other route took me back to the Orange County Register. So when I came back, I had, I had inquiries um, from different news organizations. Hey, you want to you know, come talk to us about potential opportunities? And one of those opportunities was from the register. Isn't it amazing putting your ass on the line when you come back? Everybody's like, hey, come to our party. We'd like to have you over. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I got to go to Iraq for you to notice me. <laughs> <laughs> and some of those opportunities were actually to, to do just that. Hey, we, you know, we'd like to bring you on board, but there's, you know, a good chance that in a month or two, we're going to send you back. Right. Because we're still there. Right. Yeah. And, it's and still going on. This is the worst part of it. The, the war was more or less the, um, the, you know, I hate to say it, but it was the easier part of things as opposed to the aftermath. And um, so I know some of those opportunities were like, well, you probably will go back in a, in a month. Um, and that kind of weighed into my decision, thinking that, well, the Orange County registered. I get to go back as one of those big daily reporters that I always wanted to do and always wanted to be a part of. And so that was easy. So you went, you're like, okay, OC, I'm back. Yep. Here we come from OC to Riverside to OC and then eventually back to Riverside. What'd you do during that time at Riverside or back in OC? So I was a, a cities reporter. So okay. I covered um, three or four South Orange County cities. And um, the, the gist of it, the trajectory went pretty quick. So I covered three or four different cities. And then I, have, uh, I was promoted to become the breaking news night editor at the Orange County Register in Santa Ana. Okay. I did that for about a year. Um, and then I moved from that position to a team leader position, actually overseeing the daily reporters in South Orange County. Okay. Um, and then um, eventually got recruited from there um, to Riverside. Yeah, now let's Enterprise. talk about that. Yeah. Because that's, that's a jump now. Yeah. So the inception to that was, as you know, we had um, those two those two East Coast guys who came came over here. And With big cash in their pockets. Right. Or big, big cash from other people in their pockets, right? <laughs> well, um, you know. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, those guys. Um, so they this came, is 13. This is 2013 now. Right. No, no, no. This is 2000. Yeah. Was, uh, 2000, yeah. 2013. That's right. Yeah. And so I had been working um, at the register as a team leader. Um, I got to a point where I was actually overseeing all of South Orange County as a team leader. Okay. So I was overseeing two bureaus um, and overseeing all the daily reporters, all the community reporters, essentially. We had city editors, of course, um, overseeing those individuals, but overseeing the news coverage as well as military affairs. Were you worried you kind of plateaued a little bit? You know, at the time, he kept getting more, you know, at the time, it was, it was seemed appropriate. Okay. A guy was covering this area, and this is fantastic. And, um, and then at the time, uh, we could see the writing on the wall. It looked like maybe Ken was getting ready to retire. And so what happened is we had um, a new editor, Rob Curley, uh, who's now at the uh, Spokesman Review in Washington. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah fantastic guy, fantastic editor. Um, and... I remember that the there was talk that these two new owners were going to purchase the press enterprise in Riverside County as well. And um, when they got a hold of the paper, you know, Rob was kind of new in town. He had come from um, Las Vegas. And so I had uh, mentioned to him, um, we had a pretty decent relationship. And I said, hey, Rob, you know, if you need any help with the press enterprise, let me know. You know, I worked there for four years, so I still know some of the people who were there. I know some of the editors. And that was a weird combination of buying both papers. Yeah. That was kind of unthought of. Right. These guys came in and just, um, yeah, they had a lot of of ideas about how they were going to um, sort of resurrect uh, print and sort of uh, make it make it viable again. Right. Cause now things have struggled. This isn't, you know, your early career with the register. Now things are struggling. Right. Right. We're, we're in this challenge. And so it seemed like a, you know, it was still an exciting thing because all of a sudden I had, Oh my gosh, both of my papers that I grew up with and I was part of, and I was, you know, worked at both of these places. All of a sudden they're connected. It's no longer Riverside in one place and Orange County, in another place. It's actually, Oh cool. It's all just, we're, we're one big, one big family, more mm-hmm. or less, um, and so I kind of knew both of those, both of those places. Unlike a lot of the people in, in Riverside and a lot of people in Orange County, who nobody really knew what the other person was about or what the other newsroom was about, and I kind of had an idea, like, oh, I know how these how these places work. It's kind of fun, um, and so from there on, Rob got me involved and said, um, "Hey, you want to come come down with me and Ken and talk to the." Um, the Riverside uh, Press Enterprise and find out about those folks and, and, and talk to them about what we're at, about at the Orange County Register and said, yeah, of course, sure. And so I've made that trip several times to go back and forth. And I think part of it was also, you know, they by presenting a friendly face and presenting a face that people had seen before or maybe worked before, that was kind of like, everything's going to be okay, that kind of thing. Look, Mike Coronado's here. He's going to talk to you about things. And um, and so we kind of went that went that way and uh, for a couple uh, couple weeks, a month, and then we get to a point where, um, you know, all of a sudden on one of the days, Rob pulls me aside and says, um, you know, how would you like to be the uh, editor of the Press Enterprise? And um, that was sort of, uh, it was uh, one of those kind of out-of-body experiences, sort of thinking about running this big newsroom. Um, I had run the... South County Bureau for the Orange County Register, but the difference in, you know, trying to attempting to run this, this planet that was the press enterprise that had all this uh, story and all this history and, um, 
um, all this uh, sort of deep background was entirely something different. Right. Yeah, it was... When they made that offer to you, were you a little, like, taken back, or were you ready to take that jump? I think I was ready to take the jump. Um, it was, again, that trajectory, right? So the swan song for me as a reporter was coming back from Iraq and thinking, well, you know, I used to joke with me and joke, David used to joke that, you know, we, we came back and all of a sudden he's doing photos of uh, food reviews and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with food reviews, but when you come back from uh, covering the war for almost two months, it's, it's sort of uh, <laughs> anticlimactic, right? Yeah. And so what was the next step? Well, that was my swan song as a reporter. So now either I was going to maintain that trajectory and, and, and go into um, uh, war reporting on a full-time basis, or I was going to move into editing. And so I went ahead and moved into the editing position. So naturally, once you become an editor, then you start to have more responsibility and more responsibility. And now this was the ultimate responsibility. And so it seemed like a logical progression for me. And it was also just really exciting to think about running your own newsroom. How did it go? Uh, it went pretty well. Yeah, for three years, it was, um, you know, the newsroom was fantastic. Uh, we had incredible reporters and incredible editors. Um, and uh, I was able to get in there and I think institute a culture of just quality, making sure that um, every day we were putting out the best journalism we could put out on a daily basis. And um, we were able to, I think, to deliver that. How was the struggle for you? Because things were going getting stripped away. There yeah. wasn't the money. There wasn't the expansion to do big projects. Nobody was sending anybody to Iraq. Hell, they were barely covering games in Pasadena. Right, right. Yeah, so that- How was that to deal with that with the staff? So the, the first part was dealing with, that I mentioned was the journalism, the things that we could control, you know, making sure that we all did the best reporting and the best editing and the best uh, photography that we could do. The other part was kind of on my shoulders. That was part of being the editor, was um, trying to steer the ship through very unsteady waters, right? Trying to um, keep people motivated, um, trying to take what I knew about what was going on mm -hmm. um, as we were entering bankruptcy, as they were taking away vacation time, as uh, ownership was um, uncertain, as to the future of our news organization, how, how that was uncertain, um, who was going to control us, who was going to buy us, what did that mean for everybody? So that part of my career was was really um, eye-opening and challenging. How did you like, let's say you sit down and you're meeting whoever your lieutenants are, mm -hmm. right? And you say, okay, listen guys, uh, yeah, the rumors are true, they're taking away vacation, nobody's getting raises, and pack a lunch because there's no company card anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, how does that go? Yeah. Part of it is being as transparent as possible. So you're the leader and those folks are relying on getting information from you and they want to make sure that you're authentic and you're trustworthy. Um, I didn't come into this sort of blind, you know, I had a lot of um, previous training being a newsroom, being a team leader for quite some time. Um, I also had a master's degree in management, in business management. Now, when did you pick that up? Uh, I picked that up in 2005, 2006. Okay. Um, is that when I did? Yeah, 2005, now, why 2006. Why did you think you needed to do that? You know, it's, I'm always somewhat aspirational, so I'm always wanting to learn. Okay. 
And so I thought, you know, eventually maybe I want to be an adjunct instructor. Okay. What's this college stuff all about? What is this teaching thing all about? Maybe I can do that part time as well. Cause I knew that some of my colleagues had been teachers mm-hmm. and I thought, Oh, maybe that would be kind of cool working as a reporter and then maybe teaching a class here and there. And I understood that you probably needed a master's degree to do that. Okay. And I wanted to get something that was also relevant to what I was doing. And so I did this master's degree in business management, which is essentially setting you up to run companies. And you think that helped you when during this period Absolutely. with Riverside? Absolutely. It helps you to learn how to communicate. It helps to communicate uh, in the business world, communicate in the business world. Right. And to communicate, um, interact with individuals as well, to set a culture within an organization and build that culture so that these people are putting forth their best work. Um, making sure that you're building this place that people um, feel welcome, they feel wanted, they feel valued. Um, so all, a lot of these keywords and these buzzwords that you learn in business school, but you can actually apply in the business world. Okay. And so I had, um, you know, I had gotten pretty good at, at talking to people and, and telling them what I knew and pretty much um, pan, it panning out. Like there was not a time when I was telling some something um, to someone and all of a sudden they found out it went, it, I was talking sideways. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was trying to be as, as upfront as possible. Yeah. Cause from an outsider, as it was going down, I was happier in hell that you got the job, but I can watch every day, like what was happening with the register and the mm-hmm. business itself was like shrinking, getting smaller. They were making these crazy attempts at very weird stuff. The OC post, all those right. kind of things, just doing stuff, just throwing clay on the wall, opening it with stick. During those three years for you, was there a moment you thought, oh boy, like this, this isn't going to make it. Oh, we got through that month. Mm. Oh, we're going to make it to, you know, Christmas. Oh, we got it. Like, yeah. was it that kind of a struggle for you? Yeah. Yeah. Because when was... you wear the big sombrero hat, oh, you, yeah. people don't realize yeah. there's a lot you weigh on. It was consistent. And so, you know, I took that on my shoulders. And part of that is taking the stress with you as well. So what I told my newsroom to do was to try to control the things that they can control. Right. So pretend that you were a swimmer. You know, and you're racing, stay in your lane, dunk your head underwater and stay in that lane and focus on what you do best. Let me worry about all the crap that's outside. I'll take it. I'll take the obstacles. I'll take the static. I'll take the interference. That's my role. And so I had to put myself in that clear role of being that person who was going to absorb all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, there wasn't, um, there wasn't a time during those, the, the two years or wherever it was that we were in bankruptcy that, you know, I didn't think, well, which way are we going to go? How is this going to land? How is this going to end up, right? Where, where's the shoe going to drop? Um, who's going to buy us? Who is going to decide that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be in existence or who's going to uh, direct us in a certain way? So, yeah, there was a lot of that. And um, How many hours were you putting in in a day? About 10. Seven which, days a week? Uh, five days a week. And then the weekends, of course, I was always on call. I was right. talking to the editors about what was going on. Um, I had a tremendous staff that worked way longer than I did. I mean, they stayed, got there early, stayed there late, um, and really put in some time. That's good. Yeah. You've got to have a good staff. We had the staff. We were putting out a great product. 
I mean, it's, it's reflective. It's, I, I don't have to tell you anecdotally that we were putting out a good product. The Society of Professional Journalists awarded us the best breaking newsroom in the country for our circulation class in 2016. That was the Sigma Delta Chi Award. You're right. the best in yeah. your circulation class, guys. And so, you know, I'm proud of the work that we did. Um, it was a fantastic time, fantastic people. Um, now, and- under your watch, you had a big event. A big event. Mm-hmm. The San Bernardino shooting happens. Right, right. How do you guys handle that day? Right, so the mass shooting happens. Uh, we hear the crackle, like you might think about the stereotypical crackle of uh, somebody saying uh, active shooter over the uh, dispatch lines through the radio. And we heard that. And um, once that happened, you know, basically it was uh, dispatching half our newsroom. So our managing editor, Tom, was um, was on it, you know, dispatching half the newsroom. And I was out there talking with him, trying to figure out sort of the game plan. Um, but essentially, when something like that happens, and I tell folks and I tell my students, when you see a, a catastrophic event like that happen, the newsroom is empty. It is emptied into the subject. It is emptied into the event. Um, so most of our newsroom was emptied into that event, basically trying to scrape together um, as much information as we can. Right. And we will make up the ideas, the, the directions, the focus of those stories as we go. But for now, we want you to get out there and just try to absorb what's taking place. So were you and Tom just basically standing in an empty newsroom trying to gather as much information from your troops? Yeah. Yeah. We had We had our editors who were getting the feeds back and we were listening to the radios. We were watching the TVs, of course, typical newsroom. We had, of course, you know, a quarter of the newsroom in there. Some of the rewrite guys, people who were posting really fast, people who were putting Twitter accounts up and back then storifies and things like that to um, let folks know what was happening. It was a, it was, it was an active event. So these guys had gone in, shot up the place and uh, the couple had gone into the SUV, and at this time they were still on the loose. Right. And so, you know, our individual reporters were actually following and trying to figure out what the next steps were, what was going on. You know, where were the people, where were the police going? How were they going to apprehend these individuals? Um, things like that. So it was it was a consistent news cycle. And then you have for weeks after that, it's mm-hmm. still an event. Oh yeah. You've got funerals and investigations and everybody's trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. How do you, how do you play that out? Where's you like laying out your game plan? Okay, boys, this is where we're at today. Where are we at in a week? Right. Like, so where, there, what do you do? Yeah. There's a story continuum. So if you think of, um, let me back up first. And if you think of COVID, so we talked to um, the, the students about COVID and you think it's been a year and there have been, a story about COVID every single day since that anniversary, since the first, since the first case popped up. Right. Sometimes there were multiple stories a day and we'll count six stories in the LA times, five stories in the Washington post, nine stories in the New York times every single day. And so what I tell the reporters to think about is that story continuum timeline, right? So this is COVID the event and there's a string attached to it. And that story changes every single day. It doesn't go away. It just changes. Mm-hmm. There's more to cover. And so as a reporter, you've got to ask yourself, where are we at in the timing of this story? What is happening next? And what is the most newsworthy aspect of that story you need to report? So for San Bernardino, it's the same thing. We have the first day story, when this thing is breaking, um, how many people are shot, 
how many people are killed, how many people are injured. Um, the next day stories are designating families to reporters who are now, you are the person who is going to cover this family um, of this loved one who was killed throughout the next several months. That is your family that you're going to follow. And we had a team of, of I think it was 10 reporters or so, who would follow the multi, would follow the different victims' wow. families. Um, because what we wanted to do is make sure that the um, there was some continuity. So the family got used to seeing the same reporter over and over. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't always backing up and having to sort of talk about things that would, would seem... Um, um, uneasy right. or awkward reintroduce or, yourself right or yeah. you know you wanted to really know who these people were and consistently try to create this rapport um despite the fact that this is a terrible terrible time um in these people's lives but if you if you did your job and you did it you did it properly um what you were doing was really getting the story out about this person's and the, the loved ones and what they remember about this person and the importance of this, the life that this person led. How do you feel your team did? I think they did fantastic. They were, they were into it. They were absorbed. Um, it was not always easy. Um, there were times where we had to sit back, you know, a couple of weeks later, I, I recall that, you know, we had newsroom meetings where we would sit down and um, talk about what was happening and really sort of um, think about the mental health of the reporters. Right. I mean, like, were they getting fatigued going out and just beating on this really tragic story? Right. Consistently covering tragedy, you know, even despite the fact that we were used to doing these things on a daily basis. Um, we're not really used to doing it when it hits this close to home mm -hmm. where we even knew some of the people or these were these were um, essentially, you know, people that we knew within the community. This was our community. This was people that were um, living and working in these cities and areas. Right. And this could have been us or this could have been um, um, some place that we were at at a certain time. Mm -hmm. So it was uh, it was it was challenging, I think, for the reporters to. And the photographers and everybody involved to just make sure you hit the reset button a couple of times and, and let people know how your mental health was doing. Yeah, that's that's the tough thing is we forget that these people, reporters, have to cover this stuff and it will wear on them. Absolutely. They're normal. Yep. Yeah. So when do you feel like your time was done there? Right. The you, yeah, you did your three years and then what happened? Yeah, my, well, my time was never up. My time was up when my new owners came on board and said, you're fired. Just like that. Just like that. Yeah, it wasn't, um, you know, there was, you know, I root for those guys all the time because they're my friends at the Orange County Register. They're my friends at the Press Enterprise. Um, but, you know, they're, the way these things kind of play out, there is really no easy way or there's no good way that some of these business transitions happen. Right. And so there's, um, you know, for lack of a, of a different way of saying it, there's, there's a lot of overlap. So you have this new company that comes on board. And I honestly think, and I, I, I don't think this is speaking out of turn, I think those folks were pretty starstruck. I think they were starstruck. They were the little papers and the little guys who all of a sudden were absorbing the kingdom. You know, they were now going to own the Orange County Register. Mm -hmm. They were going to own the press enterprise. Um, and these were two monoliths in the news industry. And I think they were a little bit starstruck. 
uh, coming in and, um, a little unsure how to handle it. Yeah, I think so. And, um, and that happens. <laughs> that happens. It's business. Yeah, it's business. So they brought their own folks in and, um, and they do that. Companies do that and it will happen for the end of time. Mm hmm. It's just yeah. it. Yeah, you replace editors, you replace reporters, and obviously there was overlap with the um, my position. You know, being the the editor of the Press Enterprise, you don't need two of them, right? And so I was let go. Um, I was one of the last ones to be let go of uh, the top brass of the of the uh, the news the newsroom um, senior editors, and um, um, you know, I'm still rooting for those guys. Uh, I think it's tough what they're doing today the world that they've inherited in terms of how the news industry is trying to stay afloat, especially newspapers. Right. Um, and uh, it is challenging. But, you know, the flip side to that is everything happens for a reason. You, know, you can look at it that way. So Yeah. I mean, your reason is all of a sudden you decided, yeah. let's teach these kids. One door closes and I swear to God, a barn gate opened, right? <laughs> because now I'm in the best job position I've had. I won the lottery. You know, I've become a tenured um, community college professor teaching journalism and mass media um, to the very people that I used to hire eventually out of college. Um, and I'm doing it at this level and I'm the chair of the department. I run the place. Um, so my thumbprint is on all of these students that I get to train. And it's fantastic because it's kind of an extension of what I thought I was doing um, in part at the Orange County Register of the Press Enterprise, teaching professional journalists, young professional journalists, you know, how to do, how to, how to get better. Right. And um, I get to do that in college, in the college setting. And it's fantastic. It's the best job. When, when that door opened, were you, and they said, yes, Mike, we'd like you to join our team. Were you just giddy as a schoolgirl? Like, oh my God, I can't believe this is actually happening. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And were you ready for it? Like, were you like, I'm, I'm going to teach. I could do this. Oh yeah. Because it's one thing applying, but then it's like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> now I got to run a whole journalism department. Well, I did that. You know, Not like a newspaper though. <laughs> that's right. But now you're taking kids who are, might just be randomly taking your class. Mm -hmm. As we know, when being at a community college. There's a lot of kids that just take it. Yeah. Looks cool. Yeah. Yeah. I had to take a deep breath. I had to do all those things. You know, first it was kind of an out of body experience. Like, what do you mean you're going to, so I'm, I'm the full-time person. I'm going to be a professor. I'm going to teach journalism. How incredible is that? Did you get a sweater and a pipe just oh. to, <laughs> just to, think, yep, just just to, to kind think. of fit that, That's you know, right. old journalism <laughs> style. Right. Right. Um, it, this happened in the summertime and, um, it was fantastic because it also meant that I could stop looking for a job. Right. You know, and this was like, this was the best of the best. So thinking about that was, um, now it was getting down to business. I was going to take a little vacation, which I got to do. You nice. Know, got to instantly, the pressure was off. So I had, uh, I got to fulfill my, one of my dreams, which is, um, you know, we packed up my Land Rover, which was uh, like an off-road SUV, and um, took my daughter. And um, we literally lived out of the Land Rover um, for three weeks, um, three weeks, 4,000 miles, 10 states, three Canadian provinces. Wow. Yeah. That's, what Land Rover? Uh, I have an LR3. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Discovery. I, yeah, so we packed that thing up, and I literally... Uh, I put a, uh, 
I put a sleeping system in there. I put a microwave. I put batteries. I put a water Good system. Good for you. <laughs> we slept in the rover, and I, I created a blog and did all kinds of stuff. And she was What's only- What's the name of the blog? Uh, Gabby Daddy Rover. Okay. It's still up and functional? I think so. All right. Gabby Daddy Rover at WordPress.com or something like that. I got to take a look. How did I not find that? My research. <laughs> yeah. So we... Did we, you go under an assumed name? I could not no, find that. It, I think it's there. I think it's there. But it might be hard to find. I don't know. We're, I'm looking. <laughs> <laughs> Check it out. It's fun. So she was five years old and... Um, and the best of worlds is um, just me and her for three weeks. Mom, mom signed off on it and said, "Yeah, let's you know we'll we'll check it out." She was, uh, mom was here with the I think my, my she was one years old at the time. Allie was one. Gabby was five, I think, or something like that, and four. And uh, we packed up. I put her in the back seat. I took out the other back seat and I put in a, a porta potty. And then I took out the uh, middle seat and I put in a fridge. And, um, <laughs> and went for it. We hit the road and we literally, people would ask me, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to point north and I'm going to go as far as Gabby will let us go, which was typically about 300 miles, 200 miles, and then, you know, four hours in the car. Then we had to find a place to sleep. So we'd find a campsite or we'd find BLM land, you know, federal land where we could just pull over and sleep there for free. Right. We'd set up camp and then the next morning we'd continue on. So I did that all the way up to Vancouver. And then we got to Vancouver, um, got a hotel, and we stayed at a bunch of different places along the way, stayed in all the different states, saw some relatives. And then we went across uh, Alberta and through Canada and um, stopped at all these great little campsites and then came back through uh, Montana and Idaho and um, Salt Lake and um, Arizona and the rest is history. We just had a fun time. Three weeks, three weeks on the road. That's awesome. Yeah, we did the same thing the following year, but I took both kids. <laughs> we did the same exact, we did the trip and we did, we ended up actually um, went up and around the Southwest through uh, Salt Lake City. And then at the two week mark, we picked up mom. We picked up mom at the airport and then we went to the Grand Canyon, the North Rim, then the Grand Canyon, the South Rim. And then went to Sedona and then found our way back. You put some miles on that R3. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sheesh. So what's your teaching style? So uh, to be as engaging as possible to, you know, try to, what I try to do is get, um, put practical application to theory. Okay. So when we're talking about journalism theory or we're talking about the things they read about in the books. Hey, by the way, here's a personal example of how this plays out. So when we talk about the news, for example, the cool thing I like to tell them is when we're talking about the news, we're looking at this stuff in real time, the Georgia shooting, right? The Atlanta shooting. Right. We're looking at the shooting. I can tell you exactly how that plays out, both as a reporter and an editor, because I've covered mass shootings. Um, I can tell you what, what those reporters are thinking, what they are asking the police. How are they finding out information about the shooter? How are they addressing those victims' families? How do you approach those families? What are the questions you ask? How do you structure that story? How do you bring it to put together? What are the different topics you need to cover? You know, how do visuals play into it? Um, so that's the best part of the class is that I can bring real life examples to the things they're reading about in the book. It's not just thinking about it. That's, I think, you know, if, if I have permission to boast, that's the thing I like to tell the students is like, you're getting somebody who has 20 years of experience. Right. In the I got field. battle scars. Yeah. 
And it gives them an opportunity to know exactly from all different levels, from a community reporter to somebody running an entire newsroom, um, what it's like to cover these different stories, right? So what is it like to be in the Middle East covering these stories? What is it like to cover a war? What is it like to be behind um, the jails or the prisons and cover that? What is it like to cover county government? I cover the county board just, of supervisors. What's it like to cover just a little teeny town? Right. Right where where we're at. It was extremely important to them. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. They only cared about, and I get it, their city councilman and their mayor, who's putting stuff on a rim. Mm -hmm. Like It's their town and it's extremely important. Sometimes I think that gets lost. Like if you're a beat writer for a small town, it is extremely important to those people. Absolutely. Local journalism is, you know, that's the bread and butter. Yeah. It's and the foundation. Yeah. Whether you're covering, you know, elections at the, the local level, if you become good covering the elections for any town USA, any town, small town USA, you're going to be good at covering elections at the county level mm -hmm. or the state level or the national level. Right. And so, you know, Elections. I explain to them how you cover elections. Here's an elections plan. Here is what it looks like when you're covering a presidential election. Right. Right. Here's how, here are the things that you cover. Here are the people you talk to. Yeah. It's important because everybody thinks, Ooh, well, I got to cover the presidential election. When you, at that point you are so alienated and shielded from actually the candidates and everything else, the insulation is so great. You're not getting to talk to Joe or Trump or anybody who was running for it. But if you're running for and covering the local county or city, you absolutely might be living across from the guy That's who's right. running or your kids are in the yeah. same softball league. And now, you know, and you find out and it involves you. And so being that in touch, you can do way more good work quickly covering something like that. That's right. Yeah. I mean, what was uh, Barbara Giassoni? Yeah. I learned more from her since she would say, oh, I'd sit through a Tuesday Fullerton city council mm -hmm. meeting. She goes, I know everything that happens in the city, mm -hmm. everything. But you only get to know what you're told about what happens in D.C. Because they're not sitting in there other than C-SPAN. God love them. that sits in every one of those meetings. That's but right. You want to know what happens on a Tuesday night at six o'clock, go down to your city hall. Yeah. I'll tell you right now, the, my favorite part of the paper still is actually the uh, public notices. Oh, <laughs> the public notices at the back of the local paper. They've gone down. It's shrunk a lot, but I can still find out those things I found out as a reporter before they become a story. Seeing that somebody is putting in a development permit um, for example, when San Juan Capistrano, we just had a developer in a public notice and the planning commission, they're, they are pulling their permits to build this huge housing track down the street. Okay. Now, I know there's a lot of people who don't know that just yet. They haven't seen that public notice. But now I know, oh, they're, they are not going to build those homes at, at the Endeavico site. Okay, that's interesting. Why? Now it becomes the question because mm -hmm. you don't pull it for a reason. Something happened. Yeah. Why? Right. Now there's a story. Yeah. It's not always a story because they got the permit, but they pulled it. Someone didn't get campaign money. Someone decided they couldn't use water. I mean, there's a million reasons mm -hmm. why. There's mm -hmm. a story. Yeah. And if not, at least dig and look. Yeah. And that's the thing for new journalists. If I had advice to impart, it's, it's just be curious. You know, you don't have to be the person who needs to talk to everybody all at once. You know, you don't have to be that extroverted person, 
But you do have to have a sense of inquiry. Ask yourself questions. You know, the tip I give to reporters is find yourself an issue and then ask yourself, I wonder what's going on with housing in the city. Right. I wonder what's going on with transportation in the city or the county. Um, I wonder what is going on with COVID in the college environment right now. I wonder if, right, always ask yourself that question about a basic topic or issue or an event, and you may be surprised at where it takes you. Yeah. Where, where do you think journalism right now is? Do you think it's healthy or do you think there's an issue? Yeah, that's a big question. You know, I, I think journalism is at its next big milestone. So I think it's, it's, um, it reached its peak in the 80s and 90s. Uh, when it was the only game in town. And then all of a sudden, that perfect storm, the recession, the internet, all these different apps, Craigslist, all these things that have taken away profit and revenue. Um, because right now you're seeing this, you're seeing this kind of reflection of what is journalism? What is journalism about? You have these competing forces out there. We had a very divisive president who hated the press, and he's very vocal about that. You know, whether you're left or right, whatever. Um, but the fact was that the press was made into this stereotypical negative place to be, right? Um, and there was the introduction of the phrase fake news and the lamestream media and everything that was associated that people suggested was bad with journalism, um, and so we've been, we've been fighting to kind of counter that narrative uh, with the idea of media literacy. You know, really, here's the fact checks. Here's what's really happening. Um, when we think about journalism, though, and I tell people, even if you're not a news reporter, how I sell them on the journalism program at Cyprus and, and in other industries is that this thing we call journalism is going to teach you skills that can take you into a variety of careers I can take you into places that are going to open new doors for you. Right. Um, you know, I show them the reality of those individuals who are in the marketplace today who are making really good money, who are no longer working journalists, but they're in a different career in which they are making pretty good money based on their journalism skills. Oh, yeah. So we have guest speakers that come into the class that, um, yeah, I was a journalist for 10 years. Um, I learned how to write well. I learned how to write under deadline. I learned how to speak. I learned how to communicate and synthesize information to write on deadline. And oh, by the way, I run this media relations agency now on behalf of this government. And I pretty much only hire journalists because I know they have those skills that I need to be on the team. Right. So I tell people, if even if you want to go into public relations, if you want to go into advertising or marketing or public affairs, you know, think about that journalism path because it's going to teach you the skills that you need that will eventually trans transfer over to these other career paths and communications. Right. So when you talk about the future of journalism, you know, I get back to the idea that, um, uh, when you think about um, how we tell stories, right? We are still telling fact-based stories and we're telling stories about people. Um, we're doing it in a different way. We've got all these cool platforms now, different ways of being able to transmit these stories visually now, um, along with text and graphics through podcasts. 
You see that in the um, LA Times now with Dirty John, which became a Bravo series, right? right? Remarkable stuff. You see these with these chaptered journeys um, of these stories that are all, that are in the New York Times that include video and audio and all those other different elements, these entry points of being able to tell a story. Mm-hmm. So I think what's, what's not going to change is the great journalism. What is going to change is the way we tell it, using these different skills and these different tools to be able to convey these powerful stories. Does it worry you at all that now reporters are putting out information before it's in the paper. Like let's say reporter a has a Twitter account and they're tweeting on their account. They got a blue check. They're covering someone in DC and it's not now in the newspaper first. It's on their Twitter account first. Hmm. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Um, I'm looking at it from a business sense. Let's say mm -hmm. I own the paper. Mm -hmm. Don't I want that story or something in my paper, I'm because wa- I'm watching. I follow a lot of these guys, and I'm like, really, you're 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 putting it on your Twitter first, mm-hmm. and I think you're promoting you, and then they go, well, I work for the Times, so it kind of helps them. Mm-hmm. But I'm not if I'm not covering them or I'm not listening or following them on their Twitter, I don't see that in the paper first. Mm-hmm. So I think what you see too is um, you know as much as. The paper has its own identity. I think some of that identity is also absorbed by the reporters and by the people who are doing those tweets. So this person is uh, a member of the LA Times or the Orange County Register. They're putting it on their own Twitter account. And what they're doing is they're kind of, you know, they're, they're helping to create the brand. They're helping to reinforce the brand. So as a news organization, would I ever be uh, worried about that? I don't think so. So I would want that reporter to be out there in the public putting out that information. Of course, you know, try to get them to redirect back to their own stories right. or try to get them to redirect to the paper. And I think uh, just, um, I think the self-awareness, they'd want to do the same thing as The well. issue I'm seeing, though, is I'll see somebody who I'll, I'll follow, mm-hmm. and let's say they're a sports writer, but then they're bashing the president, and then they're giving their opinion on that, and they're being real vulgar and just horrible. Mm-hmm. And then they're also covering the paper and you're just thinking, are they crossing the line? Because now I can't tell, is that the paper or is that with their thought? Like when you have that Twitter, it's hard to find that. Who's, when, you are, when are you the journalist and when are you not? Mm-hmm. If you're using your Twitter account mm-hmm. broadly like that. Yeah, you're always a journalist. And yeah. so, yeah, that's a different story. So um, it's one thing to tweet. Um, the Dodgers have beaten the Angels today four to three in a game at Chavez Ravine. Mm-hmm. That's my personal Twitter account. Check out my story at the LA Times. Right. And it's another thing to start um, sort of opining or columnizing about something that is completely different. Right. That, no. No, we don't do that. But and see, I, I, but almost everybody's doing it now. So then you get this where you're putting cracks in the armor where you're like, no, don't don't not believe what you're hearing. We're, we're, we're being accurate and we're supposed to be fair and balanced, but it's like, okay, be fair and balanced. If you're with the New York times on their account, I can't see a writer who's doing it both ways. Mm-hmm. Can't have it both ways. Mm-mm. And yeah. that's happening. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's a challenge. And what I, t- on both sides, Yeah, that's the issue. Like it, it, it doesn't matter if you're Don Lemon or Sean Hannity, or if you're a reporter for the times in New York or in LA, Mm-hmm. Like, 
where do we look at journalism and go, okay, you guys, it's got to, you, you got to be accurate all the time mm -hmm. and you can't, can't one point be an opinion and then you're presenting facts. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a big, uh, it's a big topic. So the, um, you know, we're all entitled to our opinions, mm -hmm. but we're not entitled to our own facts. And so what I, what the struggle I see today is, um, really explaining sort of how journalists uh, go about doing their jobs. Um, you know, one of the things I'm doing for my doctoral work at USC is my dissertation has to do with news media literacy. Oh boy. Among young adults, community college students. Wow. Yeah. So what I'm doing is I'm taking this topic and I have to explain to my students when you're in there, broadcast TV is a really weird animal, right? <laughs> so you That's have, nice. yeah, you have, um, when you were looking at, um, some of these TV hosts, you know, some of these news organizations have become advocacy journalists. Yes. And so what you see is you might see uh, MSNBC sort of framing their stories in a certain way. You may see Fox News framing their story in a different mm -hmm. way. Um, and you can thank Roger Ainsley for that, because in the, in the 2000s, he thought, how do you glamorize news? You know, putting tickers and getting opinion involved and all that stuff. Right. Uh, for better or for worse. Um what you have to recognize is that many of these um, individuals who are on television or on the radio, that's, that's what they consider talent. So these are the people who, although they may have these journalism backgrounds, um, they have sort of come on the air to sell their talent, their talent in being advocates on behalf of whatever the side is that they're trying to convey. Right. Um, it's your role as a viewer um, or as a reader, to cross-check that information, to do your lateral searching, to do that fact-checking. You know, that's the that's kind of the part where people get a little bit lazy, well, especially yeah. as you get older and kind of rooted in your ways. You know, you're not going to really want to, I don't really want to dispute that fact because I like that fact. Mm -hmm. I enjoy that fact and I don't want to, I don't want to dispel it. I don't want somebody to tell me it's not, it's not accurate. What I tell young journalists now is that, you know, there, I guess there's a place for advocacy journalism and, and however you, you know, in, in other areas, but for professional journalism, your credibility is what you rely on. The integrity is what you rely on. The majority, that's all you got. That's all you got. The majority of individuals who turn to, um, to turn to these news agencies uh, are relying on you to tell the truth. And they largely believe that if I pick up a story in the LA Times where Kobe Bryant has crashed in the side of a mountain, that story is going to be accurate and it's going to be factual. Um, but we do live in a time right now where it's very difficult, very difficult, even amongst the professional news sites, to oftentimes discern fact from opinion. Like when you look at the news sites, we have to take a media literacy tour onto these professional news sites, and I have to explain what you see on this right column. This is the opinion column, and it's labeled opinion. So let's start there. What that means is X, Y, and Z. Um, on the left-hand side are those news stories. Right. These news reporters have nothing to do with these guys over here. They may not even be in the same building. And you know this. There's words you do not use. In a news story. Absolutely. Because it leads to an opinion. Absolutely. And what's happened is you're seeing those words being used. Mm. And that's painful to yeah. look at. Yeah. You don't want to get to that point. You know, you want to try to um, do what Bernstein said. You know, try to use the, the um, best objective 
version of the facts that you can get for your story. Um, well, why do you think that's happening? Why do you think you're starting to see opinions kind of squeeze into a news story? You know, I think we're starting to see the, the, the ubiquitous nature of news, the ubiquitous nature of um, social media platforms, and the way we get information becomes convoluted, right? And we start to see um, some of these voices that carry a lot of weight, carry a lot of heft, begin to start advocating these positions. Um, and I think that just starts to permeate. And we start to, I don't know, maybe we become acceptant as a society of these opinions. This is what we are used to. This is what we have been acclimated into. Um, but what I try to tell these guys, the students, is that, hey, you, you've got to be as objective as possible because that's all you have is your credibility. Right. You want people to believe you. Ultimately, the bottom line is if they stop believing in what you're writing about or they think that you are uh, positioning your stories to favor one side versus another side, guess what? You're going to be out of a job. Right. Because people are going to stop sending you information. You're going to break those relationships. And ultimately, you've got to make sure that you're writing as objectively as possible. Now, that's that's not to say we don't have bias, right? Sure. Everybody's got bias. Your role is to ensure that you and your editors have recognized that implicit or explicit bias and have, written, have taken that out of your story, have filtered it out as best as you can. Did that, you ever have that sit down as an editor? With somebody and go, hey, I think the story might be crossing the line. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, people have, uh, you know, I've had situations where I've had to um, actually sit back and think about, okay, how am I covering this story? Do I have an implicit bias walking into this? And yeah, absolutely. I covered, uh, as a reporter, I covered the Minuteman Project for the Orange County Register. Oh, which, right, 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 right. Where, you know, we had lots of people across the country. It, it was started. One God, of the, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. One of the projects was started here in Orange County in Elisa Viejo. Uh, and I, I was one of the people who broke that story nationally because the founder was in a city that I covered. And I right. happened to go to his condo and sit there with him and his chihuahua. And Jim was saying, Mike, I, I think I just want to, I want to try to get these patriots to go to the border. And from there it became a week long adventure where I was in Arizona and I was in Mexico covering the border where everybody, all a bunch of people were dressed as white or carrying shiny revolvers, except they were loaded. Right. And um, trying to, you know, augment the role that the border patrol was in. So did how it, did you take what you didn't want to put yourself into that story? How did you do that? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So did, did I have a bias going into the story? Absolutely. My dad was a farm worker. He came from Mexico. He was one of those individuals who was trying to claw his way up. So, yeah, I did have a bias going into this thing. Um, that's the first step is recognizing that you have this bias and recognizing that when you write this story, you have to be extra mindful of ensuring that you are removing that bias from your story. And there are techniques to do that. You know, one of the techniques I used was um, I explained to my students, if you're writing a controversial story in which you think you have a stake in, you know, highlight everything. Highlight in blue, one side. Highlight in yellow, the other side. Highlight in pink, the background, just the information. And see visually where that lines up. Are you doing, are you leaning one way versus the other way? Mm -hmm. And then you also have conversations with your editing team. You let them know, hey, by the way, you know, this is, I may have an implicit bias here. I want you to double check. Sitting close to home. Yeah, double check my work. And, excuse me, and some of those, some of these stories, when you, 
uh, you're, you're covering these stories, you don't think you have a bias, and it slowly creeps in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, me and Dave, when we're out with the Marines, you establish relationships. You know, these guys are kind of, hey, you know what? They gave you an extra pair of socks, and you only brought one pair of socks, and that's kind of cool. Um, you hang out with the gunnery sergeant and the chief warrant officer who make coffee every morning and they're always making coffee and you can have some of that too and your buddies and there's a there's a little bit of a bias that creeps in there right sure what if the marines do something bad you're going to write about it are you going to have the um hey mike you didn't see that right are you going to have the wherewithal to do that luckily we never got put in that position right However, there's always that gut check. Sure. I mean, it happens when you see reporters who are now, you can see how much they've donated to a campaign Mm -hmm. or they're posting photos of them with presidents or, you know, being at places or book signings. And you're just going, wait a minute, you're supposed to be covering this person or this thing evenly. And now I see you just donated or gave $3,000 to a campaign. Now you're posting photos of you with them at Christmas photos. And you're, you know, saying, boy, you're the greatest thing ever. How do I see now you're, you're looking at this evenly. Mm -hmm. I think that becomes the biggest issue. And then the general public sees that and goes, "Ah, well, I agree with the crazy guy screaming fake news, fake news. And then you've just (laughs) given them ammo. Yeah. I think that's journalism's biggest problem right now is they're giving themselves ammo. Yeah, it's a biggest it's a big challenge. And you know, oftentimes I don't you know, I blame sometimes um uh, I blame the educators sometimes because I think what happens is that we we um there are there are those who teach advocacy journalism, you know, who teach, you know, you take those sides and you get involved and um, that's not what I do. No, it's, that's uh, not that's not a newspaper yeah. journalism at all. Right, all right, and it's it's that it's, makes a Tom Rafine roll over in his grave. Absolutely. That, if you tried to does. pull that shit with Tom, what would have happened? <laughs> well, you certainly would have got a talking to. Yeah, you might have had that pipe emptied out on your forehead. <laughs> You'd look like Ash Wednesday. Right, right. <laughs> right. I mean, that stuff doesn't fly with the old guys. No, no. But but think about what are we talking about? Listen to yourself. Right doesn't fly with the old guys. You know, the newer people now are saying social media is this and social media is that and journalism should be this perhaps. And, um, you know, I, I'm, does that worry you? Yeah, it does worry me. It does worry me because I'm one voice. And, but my voice, you know, I try to make that carry. And I, when I'm speaking to my students, I tell them this is how professional journalism is done. Do you get done. pushback from them? Occasionally. I think mostly, you know, when I explain it, like we were doing in depth, we had an entire semester. You know, they may, they may believe I'm a bunch of baloney when I come in, but, you know, once they get to know who I am and the facts of the stories that I've covered and how we talk about bias and how we talk about credibility, and um, I think it starts to, starts to resonate a little bit. Um, it has to if they want to stay in the industry for now. Good, because they need more teachers like that then. Yeah. Because I think right now these poor kids are not getting the proper understanding of what being a journalism is. Do you remember when we were covering at the Coast Report, uh, Prop 187 was a big deal, right? And we covered that. So what if you're on our photo, right? I took a photo and there's all this, you know, you're holding a 187 sign, pro or against. Does that come and bite you in the ass 30 years later? Yeah, good question. Like, good Lord. Right. Like, when does it stop where you're always being judged for the past for something like marching in college? Where... You didn't rape anybody. You didn't kill anybody. 
you, in the moment, you believed you were either pro or against mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But nobody was injured for it. Right. Well, that's the court of public opinion. I know. And Boy, what, it's scary. Yeah. I want to tell people, just be mindful. Just, right. you know, try to see the future. Yeah. Don't stop being who you are. If that's what you want to do, go for it. Just be mindful that as a journalist, you know, there could be some consequences down do you, the road. Do you think the media has a bias right now? I think everybody has a bias right now. You know, I think everybody um, looks at certain issues and topics through a certain lens. Um, you know, certainly when you're looking at opinion pages, you know, you can see which direction the wind is blowing at the Washington Post or the LA Times or Wall the Street Wall Street Journal, Journal right. or the Washington Times or whatever the case might mm -hmm. be. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to hope that those stories that um, are on the news side are mostly free of bias. Um, they're certainly accurate. I mean, those reporters who have come into the Washington Post or some of these bigger news organizations, um, you know, they're not in the game to lose their credibility, right? They're in the game to remain, to keep their integrity. Um, news agencies as a whole, one of the media literacy components is to look at how a story is framed. Um, it doesn't mean the story is wrong or biased, but it is framed differently. I'll give you an example. So when the when the um, embassy was moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, right? You know that story is going to look very different in the New York Times than it is in Al Jazeera. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that the facts are wrong. Al Jazeera has got a very professional news outlet. They've got a good news program, and the New York Times is, of course, the New York Times. But those stories might be framed in a different way. You know, one may be looking at the story from the perspective of what the Palestinian people think um, in the Middle East. Right. And the other might be looking at the perspective of what this means for um, U.S. government relations in, um, in Israel. You know, so different types of stories, but framed in a different way that also are very fact-based. So that's the media literacy component that you look at these stories and you think, I'm going to laterally check what is everybody else writing about? Um, that's the part that is a little tough because not everybody's going to do that. Where do you think journalism goes in the future? Um, so I think journalism's going to continue to innovate. It's going to continue to use things like um, Python coding systems to break down the percentage of homeless living in specific cities like the LA Times did so that you could, it's going to become a two-way communication where the reader can actually punch on a block where they're at and they can see the percentage of whatever it might be. It could be homeless or it could be um, um, social services or it could be um, gunshots that have happened or it could be crimes or it could be domestic violence calls, whatever the case might be. Um, I think we're going to get smarter at how we get the audience engaged in the story, right, to get them involved. And we're going to use different entry points to do that. So not just the social media platforms, but making it interactive so that um, if, for example, you want to see um, how the environment and climate change is affecting the south, uh, southern United States, and you can, you can scroll over areas like Louisiana and see different pockets and how the tide has changed over the past five years, um, what the projection is five years from now, if that's going to be underwater, if X amount of rain falls. These are stories that are happening right now. The right. LA Times did one, and I believe it was the, um, 
I don't want to mess up. It was ProPublica or it was the Centers for Investigative Reporting that did the other story in okay. the South. Um, these are extraordinary stories that take extraordinary skill and techniques and technology, all married into one package to put together for the reader, that the reader is able to actually manipulate and to really guide themselves through the story. So hopefully a lot more of that is done and a lot more people are engaged with the journalism that's taking place. Do you think the news... The newspaper itself will be around in 10 years? Um, that gets back to the question whether I think newspapers are going to die. And um, But not like the LA Times can still be alive if they're not printing the paper. Correct, correct. But do you think the paper will still be around in 10 years? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, I like, like I mentioned before, all mass media industries are profit-driven. All, all mass media industries. Sure. And um, what you're still finding is that people are still, are still gleaning some value from that traditional print newspaper. And so long as they are subscribing to that print newspaper, that there is an audience base, you have, you know, 100,000 people, maybe your readership is 300,000 people who are still looking at those stories, who are opening that paper on a Sunday morning or every day, who are looking at those advertisements. That's another way for uh, products and services and companies to reach you. And so newspapers know that. And there might be a diminishing return in terms of how much money you're making, the revenue you're getting from the paper. You may be even losing money. Right. But those news organizations may want to keep that paper going to build that reputation, to keep that reputation of that news organization. Like, hey, we're not just going to um, disregard this entire segment of the population that still likes to get the newspaper, despite the fact that we're losing money. Yeah, see, that's interesting you say that. So at one point, the Times was 1.2 million, mm -hmm. and they lost like half a million. And I was talking to a staffer there, and they're like, it seems like all, this was five, six years ago, maybe a little longer. All they were worried about was the half a million they lost and not the 700,000 they have. Mm -hmm. And it's like, sometimes people are just going to go away. They've just decided they don't like your product anymore. Mm -hmm. They either can't afford it, they don't like it, whatever. I think right now the news industry and the newspaper industries is still trying to do that. It's trying to gain instead of take care of who they have. Mm -hmm. I know the register is certainly like, I can't even look at it anymore because it's been so chopped up and they're part of everybody. Mm -hmm. I don't want to pick up the register in Fullerton and read something about the Valley. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yeah. Simi Valley to me is not in my neighborhood. Right. I used to be able to pick up the register and I got a very libertarian point of view. It felt very unbiased, but I was filthy rich on all the information in my county. Right. And then it would break down immediately into my city if I wanted it. Yeah. I think that's a lot of times what some of the newspapers are missing mm -hmm. is who they have and in their, in their town. Yeah. So when we talk about local agencies, um, news agencies, you know, um, there's one thing to talk about the technology from these big groups that are doing these great investigative reporting. Right. Um, but there is um, the other savior for the news industry is going to be local, local, local. So what you're seeing is some of these news organizations that are still printing newspapers. I can show you the dispatch. They just printed their horseshoe awards. You know, the top 10 restaurants in San Juan Capistrano, mm -hmm. the top 10 places to go get a haircut, the top 10 places you get the, you right. get the idea. That local news, you know, what, what one of my um, old uh, team leaders used to say, that's Google-proof. Basically, you can only get this really rich information, this content that's local about your neighbors, about your town, about your city, about the happenings that are going on, 
in that local paper. And I think that's one of the things that's going to keep newspapers going in the future is really local news. And you're starting to see forays into that. You're starting to see um, entry points from some of the big companies like Google and Apple that are starting to get into the local news business that are trying to figure out ways to sort of uh, monetize that local news business and try to you know get these get different different entry points into actually uh, making these things work. I think it's weird to say, but I think the local news will be their survival. Yeah. Because if I really want to know what's going on, let's say DC at the top of the pyramid and I work my way down, I'll go find it. But yeah. I can't find my local news. That's right. That's right. I mean, I started out the La Habra Star and the Tribune and Fullerton. Like, those papers don't exist anymore and no. I don't need the La Habra Star to come back. But the register certainly doesn't cover Orange County even very well. No. And that's yeah. sad. I mean, both of us worked there. It's very sad to look at that paper now and go, oh, you're like a dying animal. Somebody's put a gun to it and finish it off. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things that, um, you know, it's 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 a challenge. You know, I'm rooting for all my all my friends and colleagues I used to work for or work with at the um, at, at the local papers here. But um, yeah, those that kind of local coverage has gone away, and it's gone away for many reasons. And it's gonna, and it's likely gonna stay away. We have uh, we have newspapers that are consolidated under one umbrella, yeah. and uh, they're owned by hedge funds that are are truly, truly only looking at numbers. Period. Um, yeah, they, they 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 don't have a stake in the game. They, not they at could, all. They could care less. Um, it's not when a guy owned it. Yeah, or a gal. That's right. Right, and. and they don't need to have a stake in the game. That's not what they do. You know, you could be selling potato chips, wine, or newspapers. They don't care. They're looking at industries. They're looking at trends. They're looking at market values. They're looking at profit. They're looking at revenues. They're looking at loss. You know, all of those things, they only matter um, to those big hedge funds when it comes to the numbers, dollars and cents and things like that, and shareholder values and stuff like that. Um, so the challenge is when some of these bigger companies, I feel bad for a lot of the editors at the register that I know and some of these other papers that, um, you know, they're, they're kind of working with one hand tied behind their back yeah. and this is what they know how to do. And they live through the peak of what the power of these independent news organizations used to be in the nineties and two thousands. And now they're working through the kind of this downward sort of trend. Um, and, you know, it's going to be challenging. And I think these places, they can survive. And I think newspapers can survive. And certainly journalism will survive. Got to be a little bit more um, innovative in terms of um, what kind of news is going to be important to people. And that typically means local news, getting those local papers out there. If you could be king for a day, how would you go into a newsroom and try to help them wave a wand and be like, do this. I think it'll help. You know, um, I would I would try to first create this um, culture that uh, we're we're here to do the best job we can. We're here to do great, outstanding journalism, and we're here to do unbiased journalism, and we're here to um, try to make sure our stories are local. You know, try to get as local as we can. Um, that's the hard part: is trying to figure out how do you use a limited number of resources. Um, to cover a county as big as Orange or to cover a county as big as San Diego or L.A., whatever the case might be. Right. Yeah. If you would have told me where I 
sharpen my teeth with Jan, Jack Hancock and Stan Bird and Andy Templeton at the Lewis building, that that would now be the register's headquarters. <laughs> I would have thought you were crazy. Mm-hmm. But that's where their headquarters are now. Yeah, in many ways, it's gone almost full circle, right? So the, the register started very small and then went to Santa Ana, started in the Santa Ana newsroom with that was only one story, then moved yeah. in the big building, and now you see this regression going backwards. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it's not, I, I you know, I, I do look upon my former colleagues and hope that they're doing well and I hope they're doing okay. You know, you're only going to see half the story. Um, on social media posts and in public that they're going to talk about. But you, you know, when you've been in the industry, sort of the, um, uh, sort of the, the, the angst that is part of the industry right now. Right. Yeah. But you know, at the same time, yeah, there, there is, there is optimism and there are glimmers of hope. I tell people that, you know, journalism is heading in a different direction and it's only going to be up to you and to these other individuals to figure out what the next phase of journalism is going to look like. There's nothing to say that it can't go back to those peak years where we were in, you know, doing incredible work in the nineties and two thousands and beyond. And you're seeing that work done now. It's just being done a lot less frequently. Right, I right. mean, think about these saviors who have come on board, you know, like them or not, Jeff Bezos has done incredible work by giving the Washington post, the revenue, the, the resources it needs to do this awesome, awesome work. Right, because that baby was ready to die. Right. Can you believe if the post had died? No. Like, it just didn't make it? No. And it's become, like, one of the most important papers in the world. Right. He's and literally given them a credit card and said, go. Yeah. Make and, great content. And you see that right now to a certain extent the LA Times. The LA Times is going through all kinds of other internal strife, but, right. the, you know, the LA Times has always had internal issues. It, you know, it's, right. what, it's what a newsroom does, what a great newsroom goes through. Um, but, you know, having a private owner is all of a sudden this new innovative thing. Like there are a lot of billionaires out there who could invest their money into their community newspapers and their community news organizations. And as you see more of these things go away, I think you're starting to see these people with means recognize how important these news organizations are to society, to democracy, right? So our, you know, our careers are basically one of the few that are etched into the Constitution. Right. right. I would love to see Oprah buy the Chicago paper. You never know. Shut mm-hmm. up, put your money out, and, and you know, get a paper and get it alive again. Think right. about that town. Right. used to have great papers. Mm-hmm. Last time I was there, it was a ghost town. Well, you, yeah, I think you have a hedge fund now that just uh, bought the Tribune. and um, So there's, you know, it's, it's a challenging time. But hopefully there's, you see these glimmers of hope, and you wonder if these things are just going to spread. And you hope that they're going to spread where people are going to genuinely want to invest in this property because, well, they think they can make a little bit of a profit, but at the same time, they're doing it because they know that it's the right thing to do. It's something that we need to do. We need to rescue. We need to save. Right. Where's Michael in five, uh, 10 years? I'll give you 10. Where's 10? Where's Michael in 10? 10 years. Um, you know, I, I'm pretty comfortable with what I'm at right now, where I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I hope to still be at the school. Cypress College, teaching student journalists how to do what they do. Wearing a sweater, smoking a pipe. Wearing a sweater, smoking a pipe, maybe a cigar. And uh, just, you know, I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in a very special place right now. I'm in a very special place in my life in which, you know, I'm able to, I'm working on my, my doctorate and I'm, 
I get to do that and I get to teach all this great stuff in journalism. I get to run the program. Um, I get to talk to students every day. So I can't, you know, I want for not a whole lot. It makes me so happy to see you at a college teaching where we started in a little little college and doing what you do with who I believe one of the masters like Tom Murphine. And if you can even be half of what Tom was and teach those kids and part some of that knowledge that you've gotten over your time, then you're going to make some really damn good students. I hope so. man. I hope so. Thank you. Hey, I can't, I can't thank you enough for your time. You're the best. All right. Nice talking to you. You too, Michael. Thanks, man. Sure.